Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. Here's a brand new episode for you. This is your regular dose of English listening practice. In this episode, I'm joined by my brother James again for the, I don't know how many, I don't know how many times you've been on the show now. Eight. There's No, it's way more than that. Are you kidding? Yeah, kind of. I don't know. I wasn't keeping track. You might be one of the most frequent guests. I mean, you haven't been on for a while. No. Don't remember the last time you were. I think maybe we were talking about t-shirts last time. That's right. Your extended advert episode, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, didn't work at all. No. Did you make any money on the t-shirt? No, but I got. I got. I bought. I I bought more t-shirts than anyone else. Yeah, you, you lost money basically on the t-shirts. It's all right. Anyway, um, now James, if if it's okay with you, I'd like to do my introduction now. So uh, that means shut the f up. Um, maybe shut up a bit, but you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. If you if you desperately need to say something, then you can. But this I is put my hand up and like, <laughs> please, sir, please, sir. Can I, I say I something? I want to say something. No. Okay, so crack crack on. Okay, let's crack on. So, listeners, this is an episode of Film Club on Luke's English Podcast. It's been ages since I did a Film Club episode, but anyway, uh, in episodes of Film Club, this is where. We talk about a film that we love and that you could watch as well, if you want, to help with your learning of English. The idea is that if you listen to this episode, it can help you understand the film more, which can help you learn English from it and also just enjoy it. Now, you don't have to watch the film as well. You could just listen to this episode on its own and hopefully we'll be able to give you enough information to just, you know, help you understand the thing that we're talking about. And if it appeals to you, why not watch the film as well? So in this episode of Film Club, as I've said already, I'm joined by James, and we're going to talk about one of our favourite films, which is called This Is Spinal Tap. This is not just one of our favourite films, it's also a very well-known film in the English-speaking world. People love it, especially fans of rock music. Observant long-term listeners might have heard me mention Spinal Tap a few times over the years. Have you ever heard me say that? And 99.9% .9 of you are going, no, what? Spinal, what? Um, anyway, I have mentioned it a few times and I've said, oh, I must do an episode about that. Finally, here it is. So This Is Spinal Tap is a comedy film released in 1984. Um, it's in the style of a documentary about an English rock band. The band's name is Spinal Tap. We should probably explain what a spinal tap is. Is this some sort of really unpleasant medical procedure? It's actually um, the way that an epidural is given to a, a woman who's about to give birth. Weird. What a strange title. Spinal Tap, yeah. But I suppose it's because there was a time when rock bands, a certain type of rock band, had ridiculous... 
yeah, names. Kind of shocking or weird names. Yeah, and um, so Spinal Tap, but it's the sort of thing that sounds a bit like a kind of a rock band name, but when you actually learn about it, it's it's got a very specific medical meaning. It's it's a weird name, but it's a weird name. Anyway, so the the film, the comedy film, is in the style of a documentary about an English rock band. The band's name is Spinal Tap. So it looks like a documentary about a rock band, but it's actually a fictionalized comedy. And apparently, when the the, the guys who made the film, when they showed it to to audiences, you know the way that when they make films, they show them to test audiences. They do these test screenings to get an idea of how audiences are going to respond. Or when they showed the film to distributors or whatever, many times people didn't realise it was a, a parody or they didn't realise it was a comedy. They thought it was a real documentary. Well, it's very well done. And I don't think there were too many mockumentaries around in those days. Yeah, they, they must say... Have been- done some by someone before i mean the ruttles you said i think the ruttles is also a fake documentary it's a comedy parody of a documentary that was maybe the first one uh but spinal tap is the one that everyone always mentions as the first of this kind of comedy where it's presented as a documentary but it's all just a parody but it's very realistic which is one of the great things about it um so another word for this kind of thing this kind of comedy documentary is a mockumentary, a mock documentary. So mockumentary is a word, and it describes this kind of thing. It's also right? a rockumentary. Yeah, there's a, a rockumentary is a documentary about a rock band. So this is a mockumentary. And anyway, you and, get the, and, and a rockumentary. Yeah, it's a rockumentary. Uh, the documentary slash mockumentary slash rockumentary film follows Spinal Tap, the band, on a tour of America in the 1980s. At this point in their careers, they are not as successful or famous as they used to be. So they're sort of on the, they're, how would you say it? They're in the doldrums. On a sort of slow decline. Yeah. They're, not, as, not as fashionable as they used to be. They're obscure and maybe their audience is dwindling. And um, so it's not really a great time for Spinal Tap. During the film... We learn about the band. We learn about the members of the band and their history. We see interviews with the band members and we follow them around, observing various moments during their tour. We see them interacting, struggling, performing live, and we see what goes on behind the scenes. One of the main reasons this film is so good is that it perfectly captures the world of rock music, the kind of uh, absurd nature of the world of 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 stadium rock music the egos the ridiculous performances the big hair the highs and the lows all of it so why are we talking about this i feel like i need to justify this do i need to justify why we're talking about this i might as well here we go listeners so this is a great film with lots of very funny quotable moments and you should see it it's really good it tells the truth about rock bands and about being in a band doesn't it We've both been in bands, and at times it's just like this. It is, especially the kind of relationship aspect within bands and how people react or re- relate to one another in, in a band situation. Yeah, being in a band is, is a bit like being in a, in a relationship. It's a bit like having a girlfriend. It's some kind of the but, closest but sort of much, thing. much, much worse. <laughs> um, so it really does tell the truth of what it's like being in a band. 
Um, it, also, it's a cultural reference point. It's become part of general pop culture. For example, certain phrases from this film have entered the language as a result of the film. For example, saying this is very Spinal Tap is something that rock bands have said many times over the years, describing situations that they find themselves in as just when the music industry gets a bit ridiculous or when they or when bands find themselves in ridiculous situations, it's very Spinal Tap. And also the phrase to go up to 11, as we will find out later. And uh, this film has inspired a whole genre of comedy, as we said before, the mockumentary style, sort of presenting something as if it's a realistic documentary, but actually it's a comedy. And that includes shows like The Office and plenty of others. And I mean, Ricky Gervais did say he based just the way The Office was done on Spinal Tap, the mockumentary format. Yeah. And they even named the paper merchants after the boss of Spinal Tap's record company. Yeah, that's right. The, the Wernham, Wernham Hogg is the paper merchants in, uh, spi- in uh, the office. And in Spinal Tap, the, the owner of the record company is called Sir Dennis Eaton Hogg. Yeah. So I think it's the Hogg family has branched out into paper somewhere along the line as well as uh, being EMI. Yeah, so the office clearly paying a, a, a sort of homage to um, to this film. Yeah, a little nod to yeah. the film. Um, the film contains quite a lot of music. I mean, I actually think it's quite good. I actually really like Spinal Tap's music. Yeah, I like it. And they're funny songs. When you work out the lyrics, they they are funny. Yeah, they're, they're hilarious. And uh, that's one of another one of the things. One of the great things about it is that there is there is a sense of sort of a lot of realism. Like they, the guys who play these characters are also musicians, and they wrote music and played the music for it. And it's like actually quite sophisticated rock music in some cases. And we just love this film, and we love talking about it. So there, okay. Um, and in, just in case you aren't completely convinced, uh, This Is Spinal Tap was voted number one, the number one comedy film of all time by timeout.com. Um, Total Film Magazine placed This Is Spinal Tap on its list of the 100 greatest movies of all time. The publication included the film because it's, as they said, it's just too beloved to ignore. And beloved, if something is beloved, it means that basically lots of people really love it. Um, The film is beloved. I mean, people really love this film, not just us. So this is not just two crazy people talking about a film no one's ever heard of. Um, Lots of people love this film. Uh, You might be thinking, um, Luke, do we have to actually watch this film in order to enjoy and listen to this episode? I mentioned this just a moment ago. It would be a good idea to watch this. Um, I think it's on Netflix, or it was on Netflix last time I checked. But you don't have to watch the film you should be able to understand and enjoy all of this without watching it. It's up to you. But you could, if you want, you could listen to this and then watch the film. It'll help you understand it all a lot more. Or you could just listen to this and not watch the film. Or you could just stop listening to this and watch the film instead. Or you could just stop listening to this and never watch the film. Or you could just go back to bed. It's up to you. So, James, Spinal Tap. Um, do you remember how you first discovered the film uh, i think through magazines and stuff i used to read a magazine called select and they used to mention it occasionally music magazine right? music magazine and um i was in a band and my bandmates would i think they'd seen it before i'd seen it so we got hold of a copy somehow 
And we all sat around and watched it quite a few times, I think. Mm-hmm. So the early early 90s would have been, yeah, through Friends and magazines, and that's when I first saw it. It was on VHS. Yeah. yeah. I remember the first time I ever came across Spinal Tap was the concert for Freddie Mercury. Do you remember when Fred, Freddie Mercury from Queen, when he died, there was a big concert and lots of, um, you know, rock bands and uh, pop stars and stuff performed at Wembley Stadium, I think, to kind of commemorate his passing. And Spinal Tap were one of the bands that performed. It would have been 92, I'm guessing. I think so. Because that's when they reformed again. Yeah. Um, and did a load more gigs again in 92. But. We, were, we were watching the concert. In 92, I would have been about 15. And... Um, we were watching it, and then this band, this weird-looking band came on, and you said, oh, my God, it's Spinal Tap. And so I knew that they were a thing, and we watched them do their performance. Personally, I, I first saw it when Ollie, our cousin Ollie, showed it to me. He was like, oh, what, you've never seen Spinal Tap? This was, I think, 1997, 98, something like that. And I was like, no, I've never seen it. And he was like, right, let's go and see it. So we went downstairs in his house and watched it, and... You know, I wasn't that blown away by it. I didn't find it that funny. It was the thing about the film is that it's a bit. What's the word for it? It's a bit unassuming. It doesn't because it's so realistic. It doesn't really slap you in the face at the start. It's quite dry. It doesn't flag up all the comedy moments with a big. Here's the funny bit. It's like a lot of the stuff just happens, and you have to kind of. You either find it funny because you've been in a situation like that yourself, or you're, it's funny because you know the characters and you can see how it's just it's a bit slightly i mean it's not all subtle some of it's pretty obvious yeah comedy material but some of the best stuff is actually quite subtle sort of relationship stuff yes the way people talk and relate to each other and it's not all big brash obvious jokes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and because of the realistic nature of it you have to be quite observant you've got to listen carefully and as you said you've just got to observe the human relationships and and stuff uh, playing out but the more it's one of those films where the more you watch it the more you appreciate and enjoy it and get to know it and there's some very funny lines that are just kind of not thrown away but they're not flagged so that you could just be watching it going yeah yeah whatever but you don't realize they've said some really funny clever yeah very apt stuff about what it's like being in a band i guess it wasn't until i was i always talk about this time when i was living in japan i just i realized that i just always go on about that like it's only two years of my life but i talk about it so much but um when i was living there uh, i i didn't really have i didn't have tv or i had tv but i didn't watch japanese tv because i didn't really understand any of it um and uh instead i had all these vhs cassettes She's showing my age now, but I mean, there was DVD at the time, but I just didn't have any DVDs. I didn't have a DVD player. I just had all these VHS cassettes that some, like a, a guy who used to live in the building, this Australian guy had all these videos and he, um, he gave them to me when he left. And one of them was, was Spinal Tap. And so I just used to watch just about maybe five or six VHS videos all the time, just on a loop. And one of them was Spinal Tap. So I'd watch a bit of Spinal Tap in the morning while I was having breakfast. And then I would come home and, you know, have my dinner and watch a bit more Spinal Tap. And then when the film ran out, I'd rewind it and kind of start again, you know, just kind of like, just always like regularly watching it basically. And by doing that, I really got to know it 
really, really well and started to appreciate it more and more. Uh, so it's the sort of thing that it's, it kind of grows on you after and a while. I remember I showed it to a friend of mine and I didn't actually tell him that it was a mockumentary. I just said, oh, there's this good film we should watch. I didn't tell him that it was kind of fake. Not not that it's fake, but you know what I mean. Yeah, that it's fictional. It's act, acted. And I think he thought it was just a real documentary. And you probably would if no one actually told you. Yeah. I mean, some of it is a bit too far-fetched, but some of it isn't. Yeah. A lot of it's, I mean, just they really got the tone of the film just right, where it, it smells like a real band, looks like a real band, but then they've just exaggerated it that little bit where it's just highlighting the ridiculousness yeah. of yeah. it. Um, so who directed it? It was directed by, do you know? Uh, Rob, Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner, that's right. Um, and uh, he went on to do other things like When Harry Met Sally and some other ah. stuff. Um, City Slickers with uh, Billy Crystal. Yeah. And the limo driver from Spinal Tap. Um, who else? It, it, uh, who wrote it? I think it was, it was written by... So you've got Rob Reiner, the director, and then there's the three main members of the band who are the three principal comedians, musicians, actors, writers. And they wrote it in a certain way. So the three guys, the three main guys are Michael McKean, who plays David St. Hubbins, the lead singer of the band, basically. Then there's um, Christopher Guest, who plays Nigel Tufnell. Lead guitar. Lead guitar. And then there's uh, um, Harry Shearer, who plays uh, Derek Smalls. Lead bass. <laughs> lead bass really <laughs> they're all playing lead um michael mckean listeners you might know him as um chuck mcgill from better call saul um and um but obviously in 1984 he was much younger um christopher guest he's might not probably not that well known in the sort of mainstream way really interesting guy though <laughs> Christopher Guest was actually in The Princess Bride, the 1987 film directed by Rob Reiner, also the director of Spinal Tap. He played the six-fingered man, the sort of the bad guy of the film. So that's uh, actually The Princess Bride. Do you know that one? It's a, it's a bit of a classic. You know, he's a lord. He's actually, he's, they're all American, right? All of the people who made the film are all American. But the three actors, the three guys are actually playing English musicians. We'll talk about the accent and stuff. In Brilliant there. accents. They do really convincing English accents. Which... Americans often quite can't quite get, well, can't get anywhere near an English accent. Never mind quite. They just can't do it for the most part. Well, some American actors are able to do it and they have to go through proper sort of uh, voice coaching and accent training. Somehow you never feel that convinced though. But some of them these are good. Guys, these guys are brilliant. But these, these guys are great. And you know that they haven't had voice coaching. You know that they're just basically doing, oh yeah, I could, oh, yeah, I can do an American uh, an English accent. I don't know. Accent. Maybe they have had voice coaching because it's too good. Christopher Guest is an interesting character because I understand that he is actually, um, he's a lord. He's an English lord. He, he actually grew up in America. He's basically American. He speaks with an American accent. But it's like his dad was English <clears throat> and his dad is, uh, has a title. He's a he's he's a, an aristocrat. The eighteenth Duke of Wimbledon or something. Yeah, he's like, like that. some aristocrat and sort of part of an aristocratic family. He's actually a lord. 
So Christopher Guest is the fifth Baron Hayden Guest of Great Sailing in the County of Essex. And he, he got that title when his father died in 1996. And he succeeded upon the ineligibility of his older half-brother, Anthony Hayden Guest, who was born prior to the marriage of his parents. Wow. So apparently you can't inherit a title if you are an illegitimate child. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Some sort of old-fashioned laws and stuff here. According to an article in The Guardian, uh, Christopher Guest attended the House of Lords regularly until the House of Lords Act 1999 barred most hereditary peers from their seats. So the House of Lords... Right in in um, in London, in Westminster, you've got the Houses of Parliament, the House of Commons, where all the MPs sit. That's where the Prime Minister and the opposition debate and all that stuff, and all the laws are made and so on. There's also another chamber, the House of Lords, and traditionally this was populated by people who actually inherited their title. They had the right to sit in this house, and they also would be sort of part of the lawmaking process. These days, since this Act in 1999. Uh, hereditary peers, the ones who've inherited their titles, don't get to sit in the house. But um, anyway, an interesting thing. And Christopher Guest said in the article, there's no question that the old system was unfair. I mean, why should you be born to this? But now it's all just sheer cronyism. The Prime Minister can put in whoever he wants and bust them in to vote. The upper house should be an elected body. It's that simple. So there you go. Um, Lots of different sort of... um, uh, what's the word for it? Uh, changes, you know, people people want to see lots of different changes to the way in which uh, Parliament works in the UK. There's various kinds of things. That's a whole other episode for another time. Anyway, that was Christopher Guest and his sort of um, his aristocratic background. An, arist- is, an aristocrat, as they say in America. Um uh, and Harry Shearer, who plays the bass player, Derek Smalls, he is one of the voices of the, uh, in the Simpsons TV he's show. He's all over the Simpsons. He's Mr. Burns, isn't he? And yeah. And he's Smithers. He's Smithers. And he's he's like 60% of your favourite characters in the Simpsons are, yeah. are by Harry Shearer. Principal Skinner, uh, um, Lovejoy, the, the Reverend, Reverend Lovejoy, and lots of other characters are played by Harry Shearer. He's just got this fantastic voice. It's like one of my favourite voices. It's just so wonderful. Um, so those are the guys. And how do you know how it was made, like the, the process that they went through when, when making it? Well, I think they didn't script it, is this right? They had the scenes worked out. And because they wanted a very fluid kind of history of the band, or not fluid, a sort of... Realistic. Sort of very realistic. So they all learned the history of the band very well. So they all know exactly where the band were at different stages of their lives. And so if anyone mentioned something, the other one could jump in and say, well, yeah, of course, that was when we were doing this, or that's when we did this album more. Yeah. So they can talk about the the history happily without worrying about all the um the the dates lining up and all knowing the same information yeah they basically kind of set up the whole backstory of the group and they probably agreed on certain little jokes and little details and stuff but basically the rest of it is just improvised so they filmed all the scenes by just improvising them they went through each scene just improvising 
right? Which means that, you know, they weren't re- like memorizing a script. They were just kind of making it up on the spot, which gives it that realistic feel. But also the guys, these three main guys, they're just such brilliant improvisers. That's one of the things I love about them so much. The film is great, but also every time that they're interviewed and they're off, they've often been interviewed as Spinal Tap, and this is on television or on radio, they are able to continue improvising even in live interviews as Spinal Tap. It's like in the commentary, which is pretty much as funny as the film, the, the commentary d- track, the, the, the DVD, DVD commentary. Com- they, which is they a do rare a, thing. They do a DVD commentary as Spinal Tap, right? Yeah, and they're just it's just as funny as the film, and they they just go into it just like that, and they're in character, and they can just talk and be funny on call. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they improvised it, basically, and they also did the music. So they wrote all of the music and performed all of the music as well for the for the film. And there's a whole album of, of songs that come out of the film that they did themselves. Which I bought a few months ago and then sold it again because I wasn't really going to listen to it very often. But... Um yeah, it's great. So we've mentioned the accents and stuff and how good they are. We've mentioned how realistic it is. We might come back to, I'd like to come back to this question of like, um, whether it's based on real bands and stuff like that. It definitely um, is. There, are, I mean, but this is the thing that uh, I've been watching lots of interviews with the, the guys who made the, the film and they have said that it's not based on any specific group, but that um whenever they meet rock musicians they always say oh i see yeah you did that that's us isn't it you know like whoever it is whatever group it is they're always like yeah that you took that from us didn't you or like there's um there is an interview with um christopher guest i've got okay i've got to play this christopher guest thing okay cool uh where he's talking about the origins of his character nigel tufnell you left your base at the airport. Right, so this is Christopher Guest, the actor who plays one of the musicians in the film. Okay, and um, let's have a little listen to this. This is him being interviewed in some room in America. <laughs> don't know. Where is it? Well, I don't know. I'm asking you. What it does represent is observations I've had over the years growing up and looking at people and taking one thing from someone and some people during Spinal Tap would come up after the movie and many bands would come up to us and say, oh, I know that's, yeah, yeah. I know who that is. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's Bafta. I said, what? That's Bafta, yeah, the guy in that band in, uh... no, it's not Bafta. I don't even know that was Bafta. The guy, you know, in that group. I don't know who Bufta is. There's no Bufta. People believe what they want to see in certain things, and there's nothing autobiographical. They're just things... uh, Well, Spinal Tap, the example is that I was in a hotel in Los Angeles waiting for a friend in the lobby, uh, um, and an English band was checking in. This was 1974. The manager, and I think there were four of them, they went up to the desk, and he started doing the thing, and I was just waiting for my friend. And the manager says to one of them, where's your bass? <laughs> what? <laughs> where's your bass? I don't know. I think I left it at the airport. <laughs> you what? I don't know. <laughs> you left your bass at the airport. I don't know. Where is it? Well, I don't know. I'm asking you. <laughs> well, it went on for 15 minutes. 
I don't think I've ever been happier. <laughs> Except for the night that I met my wife. Okay. And I have to actually play another, ver this is basically another video clip of, of him telling exactly the same story, but there's a bit more detail and I'm just going to play it too, just because I love to hear Christopher Guest talk, telling this story. This is him in conversation with Ricky Gervais, actually. Angeles, I was at a hotel and I was sitting in the lobby waiting for a friend and a British band came in. This would have been 1977, maybe. Four or five of them come in. The manager comes up to the hotel. Oh, yeah, we'd like to check in, please. And one guy with a kind of a vacant expression. So what he's doing here is he's, he's doing the facial expression of Nigel Tufnell, which is basically, as he described, a vacant expression, which is kind of like standing there uh, with your mouth wide open like that. Like, there's not really much, anything going on in your brain. So it's a very vacant look. So he's very good at doing this kind of, yeah, just very stupid English rock musician, you know. He's, he's brilliant at it. So that's the vacant look that he's doing. And the manager said, uh, yeah, where's your bass? <laughs> what? Where's your bass? I don't know. You don't know where your bass is? No, I think I left it at the airport. You did what? I think I left my base at the airport. You left your base at the airport? I don't know. Watching this. Should I go? Not going back to the airport. You left it at the airport. Well, I don't know, do I? Do you know where my base is? I don't know where your base is. You said you left it at the airport. And this went on for 15 minutes. And I sat there and I thought, well... Well, anyway, there you go. That's like the origin of it. Um, we're going to have to come back to questions like, have you had similar experiences later? We need to get into the story. So do you remember the first scene of the film? It's Marty de Berge, who's supposedly the, <clears throat> the director. Yes. Who actually isn't. It's an actor. Well, the, the director is played by the... That real, is Rob Reiner. It's Rob uh, Rob. Reiner, the actual director of the film, is playing, playing Rob Marty de Berge. Marty de Berge, who is the director of right. the fictional director of the film. But it's the first clue that things might be slightly comedic because the way he stands and walks across the room and he stands and folds his arms and then unfolds them again, <laughs> just like in a really awkward way. So, so what this is, right, the very first scene of the film is Marty de Berge introducing his documentary to us and explaining what the documentary is. But, <laughs> but like, it's actually, there's not really many obvious jokes in this introduction. It's just him introducing it. I'm going to play the clip. You just think this guy's a bit of a hack and you just think he's a bit pretentious. A hack is like a sort of, journalist without any sort of quality mm -hmm. just churning stuff out for the sake of it yeah okay. and um you just think this guy this guy's not the a-grade material that you know that you'd kind of want from a documentary maker this is not steven spielberg this no. is like you know steven spielberg is the a-grade this guy is like the sort of you know f, f yeah and f he's got grade. a little sort of navy cap on which seems like a bit of an affectation he just looks kind of funny. he just looks wrong and funny but he talks about the bar, the, the the documentary but it's the, one of english loud england's loudest bands yeah that's which how is one of those sort of the best thing you can say about them well they were loud 
<laughs> They're one of England's, England's loudest bands. Yeah, not one of England's best bands, one of England's loudest bands. But yeah, the thing that makes us laugh about this scene is, that, and obviously you can't see this in the audio version, you can't. Can you see audio? I don't know. But um, there's this, there's a moment where he's talking, and he he goes to kind of like cross his hands while he's talking, and then uh, obviously realizes that that's just not going to work, and then he puts his hands down. So I don't know, listeners, if you've ever been in that situation where you're like standing, maybe talking to people, trying to look casual, trying to look casual and relaxed, but you realize that you don't know what to do with your arms, and you maybe try you adopt a, a posture, and then you instantly realize no, this isn't working, and you try to try to go back to normal again but it looks very uncomfortable a bit like if you're talking to a girl at a party and you, you realize you don't know what to do with your arms you're like i'll just cross them or i'll lean against this wall and then like no this is not going to work i just have to stop leaning against the wall the wall's a little bit further away than you were expecting so anyway, we're getting distracted now but that's that's the kind of funny thing about this so this doesn't seem that funny except the the name of the the music venue i think it's like the electric banana uh, just don't look for it it's not there anymore <laughs> just a funny line <laughs> like, like as if it's just like it was never there but you <laughs> the club doesn't exist anymore because it closed down uh and you can't see him awkwardly standing crossing his arms and then uncrossing them again and i like the fact he talks about his cv is like a really cheesy advert that he did he's like hi i'm marty de Berge. I, uh, I you know i this is my first documentary film i've made a lot of adverts ad, uh, yeah know, made a lot of commercials it's like oh great the in the dvd commentary where spinal tap are commenting on the film while they're watching it when marty de Berge says i've made a lot of commercials uh i think nigel goes yeah you've made a lot of shit as well um which is quite quite a funny moment anyway uh Blunt. this is um this is marty de Berge introducing the film Hello, my name is Marty DeBerge. I'm a filmmaker. I make a lot of commercials. That little dog that chases the covered wagon underneath the sink, that was mine. In 1966, I went down to Greenwich Village, New York City to a rock club called the Electric Banana. Don't look for it, it's not there anymore. But that night, I heard a band that for me redefined the word rock and roll. I remember being knocked out by their, their exuberance, their raw power, and their punctuality. That band was Britain's now legendary Spinal Tap. 17 years and 15 albums later, Spinal Tap is still going strong. And they've earned a distinguished place in rock history as one of England's loudest bands. So in the late fall of 1982, when I heard that Tap was releasing a new album called Smell the Glove and was planning their first tour of the United States in almost six years to promote that album, well, needless to say, I jumped at the chance to make the documentary, the, if you will, rockumentary that you're about to see. I wanted to capture the, the sights, the sounds, the smells of a hard-working rock band on the road. And I got that. But I got more, a lot more. But hey, enough of my yakking. What do you say? Let's boogie. Okay. And then we get the intro where we see a sort of montage of things like musical equipment being unloaded from lorries and trucks and things and stage stuff being set up. and The fan, giant skull. Fans uh, talking about the group and stuff like that. I think some of those fans are real people. 
Yeah, you know, one of them, one of them's, you know, the, the the real hippie girl. She's one of the girl. She's the girlfriend of one of the members of the Eagles. Um, yeah, so I think some of the some of the footage in here is actually genuine footage of genuine rock fans. I think so. Yeah, and then so we see the montage of the, uh, montage of the band's gear being transported and fans talking about the band, and then we are introduced to the band on stage playing one of their songs. Tonight I'm going to rock you tonight. That's the name of the song. Tonight I'm going to rock you tonight. They had to add the other tonight on the end. But it also makes it more comedic too. Tonight. Yeah, tonight I'm going to rock you tonight. Um, apparently there's already a song called Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You, so they had to add the Tonight at the end to kind of, you know, for the, the legal thing. Now, um, I, I'm not playing the music, because whenever you play music on, you know, in episodes of things like podcasts or YouTube videos, um, there's always a copyright strike involved, so I won't, I can't play the music, unfortunately. Um, but um, things that you notice instantly about the band, and you, you see footage of them performing on stage, is their ridiculous hair. And they're obviously they're wearing wigs, uh, but it's just a joke about those bands from the 80s that had really, really ridiculous hair. And it had kind of got a bit past it by that point, surely. Yeah, I mean, the- punk had happened in the late 70s in the UK, maybe a bit later in America. So by 84, all that overblown rock stuff, I mean, maybe it was, wasn't was out of date, but I think this film made you realise at the time, okay, this has got a bit tired now. I think this is maybe This why, is the turning point. Yeah, this is why the film is a cultural sort of uh, touchstone. It's because it was basically ev- the culture realising, oh yeah, these kinds of big, rock bands are ridiculous are this is stupid to- and cheesy and ridiculous and, and childish and the worst thing in the world basically. <laughs> yeah what used to be at some point maybe 15 years earlier was a genuine sort of cultural movement that uh, for about i don't know a year or something a couple of years that they uh, people doing it thought they could change I mean, the when world you've got led zeppelin and black sabbath at their height that would have been 74 yeah or before that even even before that we're talking yeah. about the sort of that's the idealism of the 60s yeah. which is the origin of all this kind of stuff but then and this is 84 so it's been going on a long like time t- good, a good 20 years at least after this you know it's like just just under 20 years after the summer of love and the the the, the pinnacle of that sort of counterculture movement in music essentially you've just got uh, what it's become is guys with really stupid hair and spandex and uh, glitter and makeup and no actual, I mean, it's just become a parody of itself. And then, so the film is just the perfect sort of um, expression of, of that, of how ridiculous rock music had become and how, as you said, childish and stupid it was. Um, so yeah, you see the band performing, they've got ridiculous hair, they, they're wearing ridiculous clothes. Also, just lots of little details, like the way when Nigel plays his guitar solos, his his mouth moves in that way that lead guitarists' mouths mouths move. You know what I mean? It's like he's making love to his guitar, basically, but when <laughs> in you a see, sad kind of way. But when you see a lead guitarist, a really good guitarist doing a solo... And you look at their face, their face, their, their, their faces always do funny, weird things. Uh, so he's got that. He kind of, they've managed to get that right. Um, very, very, very questionable lyrics. When you really listen to the lyrics, you realize that they are really, really ridiculous and funny. Um, and then we get the, then we get the first bit of interview footage with members of the band. Marty interviews Spinal Tap about the history of the group, right? Um, 
What do you remember about this scene where he talks to them about the, the this history? This is the best bit where they've obviously all learned the story so they can bounce off each other without having a script, mm -hmm. but they all know where to chip in and what happened next in the band story. So they can freely go from person to person and ask them questions and they'll all have the same set of facts mm -hmm. to hand. And it's it's and it's very funny, reminds me of all the origin stories of all the bands, mainly the the London bands, like, but, but all of them, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, yeah. like pretty much every band that came up in the early to mid sixties have they, the same story. Really, they, all they have, start out as an early sort of psychedelic band or a no, pop band. The pop bands is first. Then it's, they go psychedelic, and then they just kind of go into sort of this this seventies rock world, ridiculous seventies rock stuff. Yeah, um, and, and they all have multiple name changes. Right, so it's and and lineup changes. It's very realistic, like the names that they that the the original names of the band that they had. the The main joke is about the the band's names, really. That's the main joke here. Um, and well, let's listen to that clip, um, and then I'll just sort of like flag up the the joke about the the band's name. Here we go. So this is Spinal Tap talking about the history of the group. Group. I understand, Nigel. You and David originally started the band uh, back in when was it? 1964. Well, before that, we were in different groups. I was in a group called the Creatures, which was a skiffle group. I was in Lovely Lads, yeah. and then we looked at each other and said, so, "Well, we might as not? well join up," you know. And uh, so we became uh, the Originals, right. and uh, we had to change our name. Actually, well, there's uh, another group in the East End called the Originals, and uh, we had to rename ourselves and the New Originals. New Originals, yeah. and then. Uh, they became the regulars. They changed their name back to the regulars, and we thought, well, we could we could go back to the originals. But what's the point? But we became the Thamesmen at that point. Right, I've got to stop there because there's music. So the joke there was the name of the band that they were original. They were called the Originals, but there was another group called the Originals. So, you know, if you're original, it means that you're doing something that no one else is doing. So you can't have another group called the Originals. And the mention of Skiffle there, all these bands started as Skiffle bands, including the Beatles and lots, mm -hmm. and, lots and lots of other bands. Yeah. Um, and then, so they had to change their name from the original. They called themselves the New Originals, which also is kind of a contradiction in terms. Um, and uh, and then what? Then the other band called themselves the Regulars, and then they called themselves the Thamesmen, which sounds like the Quarrymen, which is the original name of the Beatles. Wasn't there the Kingsmen as well? Wasn't that the, the, the Kings, Kinks? The Kingsmen was a group. I don't think it was the Kinks. There was another group called the Kingsmen, and they did Louie Louie, that famous song. Oh yeah, of course. But yeah, so it's just just uh, it, it rather than it being like out out and out hilarious stuff here, like obvious jokes. It's more just the way that they have really realistically captured. The, the the story of a group like this it's just it they just, know their subject matter so well all they need to do is basically do what really happens but just exaggerate it a little bit and then you get comedy yeah exactly and then we, we hear one of their their songs and then they start talking about their drummers right because um, that happens in real rock it seems to be that lots of bands get through a lot of drummers yeah, that's, this is one of the kind of cliches of rock music is the the way that the lineup of the band changes over the years. And I think it, it's Judas Priest is the band that had all the drummers. That was, I don't know if it was a direct in, inspiration, but it's certainly similar that Judas Priest have gone through, I don't know how many drummers over the and years. Drummers do have a habit of overdosing. So in this next clip... I mean, how hear, many famous rock drummers have died? 
Uh, young, you know, young before their time. Well, the famous ones being John Bonham of Led Zeppelin and Keith Moon Keith of the Moon. Who. There's a guy recently from the Foo Fighters. The Foo Fighters. Yeah, yeah. There's others. Uh, who else is? Well, loads of drummers have died. I can't think of any other famous ones right now. But I think, yeah, I mean, the the, the cliche is that the drummers, the drummer is often the sort of more uh, their lifestyle is probably a lot more. Uh, I mean, the, the Oasis drummer got kicked out, didn't he? Replaced by another drummer. Yeah. And th- this, there's always drummer changes. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, the Beatles even. They had Salvo, our band Salvo. We got through four drummers. There was Dave, there was you, there was me, then there was another guy after me. Yeah, four drummers, yeah. And none, none of the other band changed, just the drummers kept changing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So the way that bands change their their lineup uh, um, over the years. So there've been actually in total, I think, oh God knows how many, nine plus nine other. So there's been eighteen drummers in this band over the years. Did you know that? So let's let's hear them talking about the drummers, the different drummers they've had, and listen carefully, listeners, for the reasons why the drummers died. Okay, all right, here we go. Your first drummer was uh, the Beeps. John Stumpy Peeps. Oh, yeah. Great, great, uh, tall, blonde, geek with glasses. Yeah. Uh, good drummer. Great look. Good drummer. Good, yeah, good yeah, drummer. Fine. What happened to him? He died. He he died in a bizarre gardening accident some years back. It's so really it's one of those things. It was, you know, the authorities said, you know, best leave it. Yeah. It's not unsolved, yeah. really. You know. And he was replaced by. Uh, Stumpy Joe. Eric Stumpy Eric Child. Child. Yes. And Eric. what happened to Stumpy Joe? Well, uh, it's not a very pleasant story, but no. um, he's, uh, he, passed on. he died, uh, he choked on, uh, the, the, the official explanation was he choked on vomit. It was, actually, uh, it was actually someone else's vomit. It's not exactly. <laughs> you know, there's no real. Uh, well, they can't you know, prove still... whose vomit it was. They never. They don't have no, facilities no in Scotland no Yard to, to print You can't really dust for vomit. Now, during the Flower People period, who was your drummer? Stampy's replacement, Peter James Bond. He also died in mysterious circumstances. Uh, we were playing uh, a uh, festival, bl- jazz blues festival. Where was that? Well, blues I, jazz, really. Blues jazz festival. It was, the, it was the. Uh, it was in the Isle. Isle of Lucy. Lucy. The yeah. Isle of Lucy. Isle of Lucy. Jazz blues festival. And uh, it was tragic, really. He exploded on stage, just like that. He just went up. He just was like a flash of green light, and that was it. Nothing was left. Look at his face. Well, there was. It's that, true. This, this truly did happen. There was a little green globule on his drum seat. It's like a stain, really. It was, it was a small a stain in a globule, yeah. actually. And you know, was, several, you know, dozens of people spontaneously combust each year. It's just not really widely reported. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Your first. <laughs> okay. Did you get that, listeners? The reasons why the drummers died. So their first drummer was uh, John Stumpy Peeps. He died in a bizarre gardening accident. I don't know what that could have been. Um, and the authorities, the police, they said it was probably best left unsolved, which is what, <laughs> it's one of the funniest lines in the, in the film. But uh, I don't know, how, what can I say about that? Like the, the police basically looked into the crime and were like, no, nah, it's probably best that we don't try to solve this, which is obviously something the police would never do. Well, I don't know about that. Some of the funniest things in the film are just how serious they treat it all and how could they keep such a straight face. And it's all it's not like, here's a joke. It's just very dry humour and very deadpan. 
mm-hmm. naturalistic performances. It's just subtle and massively, massively stupid at the same yeah, time. Yeah, completely ridiculous. The second drama was Eric Stumpy Joe Childs. Stumpy Joe. Uh, who ch- Eric Stumpy Joe Childs. So how did his name was Eric Childs and he ended up with the nickname Stumpy, Stumpy Joe. Joe. God knows. But the, the thing is that their first drummer was called John Stumpy Peeps. So it's John Peeps and his nickname was Stumpy. The second drummer was called Stumpy Joe. So I don't know what's going on there, but it kind of gives you a sense of a backstory. Uh, and John, uh, Eric Stumpy Joe Childs uh, died. He choked on vomit. Uh, it was actually someone else's vomit. That's the oh, thing. That's gross. It's it is gross, obviously. But the this the thing is that there was a period when a lot of rock stars died because they choked on their own vomit. This is not nice, obviously. But Jimi uh, Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix. Um, um, there are others. Jimi Hendrix is maybe the most famous one, but lots of people did it, and that's because they took like barbiturates. Um, which are like kind of, what are barbiturates? I don't know. Just downers. downer of some sort. I some don't really know. Sort of thing that would make you relax. Uh, and they drink alcohol. And then in their sleep, they uh, vomit. And, you know, if you're lying on your back and you vomit in your sleep and you are under the influence of a barbiturate, you won't wake up and you'll choke on your own vomit. It's horrible. I mean, it's just absolutely horrible. But lots of rock stars die that way. Um, but so Eric... Child's choked on vomit, but it was someone else's vomit. I don't know how that's possible. It's just a sick joke. <laughs> it's a sick li- joke. Literally a sick joke. Yeah, and it's something about the world of rock stars that, you know, they, they live in these sorts of very um, debauched, uh, they live these debauched lives. And I love the line, like, um, it's, you know, it's hard to tell whose vomit it was because you can't actually, you can't dust for vomit. Looking at the subtitles there, actually one of them starts talking about spectra analysis as well. What? doesn't matter. But there's various different, I mean, they mentioned Scotland Yard and, you know. You Police can't. investigations in order to find out whose vomit it was. But it's impossible to find out because you can't dust for vom- vomit. Because basically you dust for fingerprints, don't you? That's where that phrase comes from. Exactly. You dust for fingerprints, but you can't dust vomit to find the thing. Fi- it's just a stupid throwaway line, but it's funny. Um, third, Their third drummer is Peter James Bond, who some spontaneously combusted on on stage during a, a jazz blues festival on the Isle of Lucy. Uh, spontaneous combustion. This is just when someone catches fire or explodes. It's a myth. It's a myth, is it? Spontaneous human combustion. They used to think that there was such a thing because they'd find evidence of someone all burnt out. Yes. And they think, well, they must have spontaneously combusted, which is just ridiculous. The idea that you can well, just burst that? into flames you can just suddenly without just... any reason. <laughs> you just go up. But really what it was is people die with a cigarette in their hand. Yeah. The cigarette burns maybe some alcohol that's near them and on their clothes or something. And you can basically very, very slowly smolder Yes. for several days until you're left as a charred corpse globule. But, the, but <laughs> and, uh, Peter James so, but, Bond just exploded on stage during a jazz blues festival, leaving a little green globule on the drum seat. Yeah. <laughs> a green flash and there was just like a little green blob left on the drum seat. <laughs> um and there are others. There are others. Uh the the drummer that they have um during this tour is Mick Shrimpton. Um and you, you do sometimes while they're talking about all these drummers who've died, you do sometimes see Mick Shrimpton looking a little bit worried. Worried. <laughs> and Marty asks him at some time, Are you worried? And he goes, Well, it can't happen to everyone. 
And Marty goes, well, the law of averages says that you will survive. <laughs> What's the law of averages, though? Well, just that if the, it, it can't happen to everyone all the time. If you the, flick a coin... It's not going to be heads forever. If you th the first three times you flick its heads, then the, the chances are that the fourth time it'll be tails. No, that's not true. There's no, that's not true. That's right. It's a 50-50 chance every time. Um, <laughs> I mean, to be, to, to be clear, all of their drummers uh, die. Including including Mick Shrimpton, who also explodes on stage. You see it happen at the end of the film uh, during their during their tour of Japan, and he's replaced by Joe Mama Besser. He's the one that says, "I like Mick Shrimpton because there's a bit as the credits are rolling. There's bits of outtakes of interviews, mm -hmm. and he's obviously asked him a question about what about the the sort of rock star lifestyle." He goes, well, as long as there's sex and drugs, I can do without the rock and roll. <laughs> well, he's like, you know, the, the sex, the drugs, the rock and rolls. Well, yeah, as long as there's sex and drugs, I can do without the rock and roll. Um, the, the film goes on. We see the launch party of their US tour, which is like them and some swanky uh, New York um, loft apartment with Bobby Fleckman, who is the uh, the hostess, and Sir Dennis Eaton Hogg, who is the owner of the record label. He's the guy that used to be in the Avengers or something? The, What's the his name? The old Avengers from the 1960s. He's an old English 60s actor. He's an, yeah. But the, the, the thing I like about that is because it's sort of like post-punk, it was seen as really uncool to be kind of smarming up to big like record execs and just to be a bit of a a shill. Yes, I don't know what the word is. It's like is. a sellout. To be a, a sellout, to be like with a big guy, big fat guy in a suit there with a cigar going... Okay, boys, you know, let's, let's tap. Take, tap into America. It was just seen as really corporate and really cheesy yeah. and yeah. really, like, un-rock and roll. And yeah. in this, they're shown as all shaking hands and taking photos with him. And they're, like, going, oh, thanks so much for letting us do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. And, I mean, the thing is, though, it's it's... All the punk bands probably had big fat guys with cigars somewhere, but they just didn't show them. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a funny little... All the bands in the audience will be squirming at that point, going, this is just really awkward and embarrassing and cheesy. It's about but the integrity of rock bands. The integrity. They're supposed to be counterculture. Yeah, they're supposed to be kind of rebels and a bit naughty and, you know, kind of like free spirits and a bit crazy and wild. And then you've got this big, rich English white guy. Sir going, Dennis Eaton Hogg. Sir Dennis Eaton Hogg. <laughs> He's been to Eaton and he is a hog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a few other people that we know. Yeah. Um, so that's a bit of a funny nod to kind of like the punks in the audience going, don't you just hate this? Yeah, that the, they are sucking up to the ultimate um, symbol of the establishment. Yeah, if, I guess so. And it just shows that all their kind of rock posturing is just posturing and they're really just... They're just childishly just... Artists for heart, you know, not even artists. Yeah, they've got no what, integrity at yeah. all. They have no integrity. They just they're in it for the money, and they're in it for the for the uh, popularity and for the groupies and 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 so on. And just you know, thanks for letting us do, you know, thanks for letting us do this. Yeah, <laughs> and she, Bobby Fleckman saying to her, "You just don't talk too much when you're with Serene." Yeah, she's pointing to members of the band. It's like you know, yeah, just you don't talk too much. Yeah, <laughs> Bobby Fleckman's fantastic. What's the Fran Drescher? That's the name of the actress. She, she's awesome. She's brilliant. They take a. Um, uh, a drive in a limousine and uh, I mean I'm not going to explain everything but basically there's conversation in the limousine which but with the manager of the band whose name is Ian Faith 
Ian's great. Ian's a brilliant character. Their manager is this English guy who, I don't know, we'll probably talk more about Ian Faith later, but Ian Faith is talking about how actually they're they're not selling enough seats in their concert venues. It suggests that things are not quite right in the world of Spinal Tap. And there's a good bit where Marty asks him, are they becoming less popular? It's like and the a, manager says, in typical management speak, they're not becoming less popular. No, it's just their appeal is becoming more selective. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just a very clever way. I mean, he's full of lines like that, you know, just like, just bullshit, basically. But it's just a clever way of saying, no, they're not less popular. Just their appeal has become more... It's just very music industry sort of Yeah, it's just chat. He's, he's trying... He's redefining... Uh, he's just using language. Rather than they're becoming less popular, yeah, their appeal is more selective. Just using, It just sounds better, posi- doesn't it? It sounds more positive. It sounds more, positive. Positive. It yeah. sounds more astute. Like, their, their appeal is just becoming more selective to more, you know, more taste led people are, are are drawn to their stuff it's not that the less people like them it's just they're selecting more interesting people to be liked by a smaller <laughs> pool of people and tap toured america they were uh booked into ten thousand seat arenas and fifteen thousand seat venues and it seems that now on the current tour they're being booked into 1200 seat arenas 1500 seat arenas and uh, i was just wondering does this mean uh, the popularity of the group is waning oh no 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 not at all i i, I just think that the uh, that their appeal is becoming more selective then we, we get a uh, them on stage doing one of their songs which is called big bottom which is all about his uh, girlfriend having a girlfriend with a big bottom and they're all playing bass on that one that's right and then we get more interview footage with marty and the band talking about reviews of previous albums and this is where marty um uh DeBerge is kind of saying to them you know some of your recent albums have had really bad reviews and basically the critics think that spinal tap are just rubbish so we're going to hear some this looks pretty ad lib to me. It sounds like they haven't heard these reviews before. I could be wrong because maybe they wrote them, but um, mm, yeah, it seems pretty spontaneous. It's if it's not spontaneous, they've acted it very well. There's the some of the previous al- albums are Intravenous de Milo, which is kind of a terrible gag that you know the Venus de Milo, which is a you know Greek it's just statue. A, it's a classic bad rock pun, isn't it? Intravenous really? de Milo, and the front cover is. The, the Venus de Milo statue with an intravenous drip going into its into its arm. Um, and Shark Sandwich is another one of their albums. These remind me of there's a band, there's White Snake and Great White. Mm-hmm. And they're the cheesiest, worst English rock bands going. <laughs> and it just always reminds me of those kind of bands. And they had the worst covers and they're the kind of the worst hair metal because my friend at school was into some of or his brother was into a lot of heavy metal so i kind of got exposed to some of it mainly just the covers because we didn't really used to listen to it very much but there was copies of kerrang uh-huh. going around and there it's was heavy metal album covers around with really bad covers and ludicrous stuff kind ludicrous. of quite sexist quite kind of like dodgy in many ways covers yeah and you just think these this is supposed to be cool <laughs> like this this isn't cool this is really sad um so let's listen to marty asking the band about the reviews of their uh previous albums um here we go 
Let's talk about your reviews uh, a little bit regarding Intravenous de Milo. This tasteless cover is a good indication of the lack of musical invention within. The musical growth rate of this band cannot even be charted. They are treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality. And bad poetry. This treading water. This means, you know, when you're in water, listeners, right, you're not swimming, but you're just trying not to sink. You're trying not to drown. So you do that thing with your arms. You swish your arms around. You kick your legs. That's called treading water. It just means not moving, not going anywhere. So um, apparently the band is treading water in a sea of... Retarded sexuality and bad poetry. Wow. I remember that off by heart. They are treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality and bad poetry. Oh, that's, that's nitpicking, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> nitpicking is when you is when you pick on certain specific details, you know, like little details. But that that review is not nitpicking at all. I mean, that is a grand statement about the band. It's not nitpicking at all. Water in a sea of retarded sexuality and bad poetry. Oh, that's, that's nitpicking, isn't it? <laughs> the gospel according to Spinal Tap. This pretentious, ponderous collection of religious rock psalms is enough to prompt the question, what day did the Lord create Spinal Tap, and couldn't he have rested on that day too? Never heard that one. That's a good one. That's a good one. The review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word review, just said, shit sandwich. Um, <laughs> Where'd they print Where'd that? that? Where'd they yeah, print that? That's not real. Is it? You can't print that. Again, more bad news uh, from Ian Faith, the manager. At one point, he says, "Yeah, the 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 Boston gig is being cancelled," but he said, "Don't don't worry about it though. It's not a big college town." That's got to be bullshit. What? Boston must have at least one massive college. Are you kidding? College. Boston is the biggest Boston college University. town in the whole country. You've got Harvard. There's, you oh, know, Harvard's in Boston, Yeah, or Yale. All of the biggest uh, universities are in right, Boston. Right, so I didn't know it was that big a bullshit line. It's, yeah, it's, it, it's all, it's a, it's absolutely the biggest university town in the whole country. So, yeah, the Boston gig's been cancelled, but, you know, I wouldn't worry about it, though. It's not a big college town. So in America, that would have got a big laugh in the cinema, I'd yeah, imagine. Yeah, definitely. Uh, then uh, back to the party that... The launch party in New York at the glitzy um, loft apartment in New York. Uh, Bobby Flankman, who I think is works for the record label. She works for Eaton Hall. Polymer Records. Polymer Records. Which polymer, it obviously sounds like Polydor, but it's polymer is just a type of plastic. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby Flankman talks to Ian, the manager, about the album cover for Smell the Glove, right? album cover that's the picture that you have on the front and of the smell album. the glove that's a kind of smell oh by the way smell the glove is the name of their new album which smell is the, the kind of thing that people would have done in the 80s for cheesy rock bands and it's become a kind of it's become a kind of catchphrase meaning it's a bit like jump the shark i yeah. don't know you're gonna have to explain they that, don't know now, that either. all right well Smell the Glove is just a, a catchphrase which just means a ridiculous album cover, basically, or a ridiculous name for an album. So let's listen to Bobby Fleckman and Ian having a discussion about the choice of image for the Smell the Glove album. And basically, Bobby Fleckman thinks that the image is too sexist because it features a woman on all fours. You'll hear it, but I'm saying it in advance so that they get a chance to understand it because otherwise they might not understand it. Well, it sounds like a very sexist cover. Exactly. It's a very sexist cover, and this is the problem. And, and Dennis Eaton Hogg is basically saying you can't release the album with this image on it. And so this is a problem because, you know, as we'll see. So, so let's listen. Um, listen, I really, I really do have to talk to you a bit about this. Uh, Ian, 
this whole issue of the, uh, the issue of the cover. Yeah. Um, we, uh, I mean, we feel, and it seems to be facts, that uh, the company is rather down on the cover. Is that the case? Yes. You can give it to me straight, you know. Listen, um, they don't like the cover. Uh-huh. They don't like well, the cover. Well, that's certainly straight. They find it very offensive and what? very sexist. Well, what exactly do you find offensive? Ian, I mean, what's offensive you put a greased, naked woman yes. on all fours yes. with a dog collar with around dog her collar. neck and a leash. And a leash. And a man's arm extended out up to here, holding on to the leash and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? No, You don't, don't. find that sexist? This is 1982, That's Bobby. right, Come it's on. 1982. Get out of the 60s. We don't have this mentality anymore. Well, you should Listen have seen the cover they wanted to do. I don't care what they want. See, now, this is something, Ian, that you're going to have to talk to your boys about. When we're certainly not laying down And I don't think that a sexy cover is the answer for why an album sells or doesn't sell. Because you tell me, the white album? What was that? There was nothing on that goddamn cover. Excuse me, the phone's sure. ringing. And we'll talk about okay. this after. So, did you get that, listeners? Uh, basically, yeah, the record company's re- uh, objecting to the album because it's too sexist. And Ian, what does he say? What's the thing he says? Oh, yeah, it's like, oh, you know, you should have seen the cover they wanted to use. It wasn't a glove, I can tell you. <laughs> so <laughs> I wonder what it was. I don't know. Uh, that, that description sounds ridiculous, but there's plenty of r- heavy metal albums with that kind of cover for real. Yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. We get some clips about with uh, interviews with Nigel and David exploring their relationship, exploring the fact that they grew up together as kids and stuff, and it's all very Lennon and McCartney. Well, all these bands are like this. They all have like very close relationships with these. It's like a, a bromance, a male romance between two best friends, which kind of takes them around the world and brings them great success. It's like the driving force behind the entire sort of uh, the entire energy of the group is like this odd sort of quasi romance between two guys. Yeah, because it's a special kind of chemistry you get in a band which, you know, there's millions and billions of bands out in the world. Very, very few of them have that magic formula. Yeah. Whatever that is, that means they write good songs and have personality and there's a the right image. There's a chemistry. There's something has to be right between normally two or more people. But quite often it's two people at the core of a band. Yes. And normally two men. Or two yeah. boys. Like Lennon and McCartney. And- they start out as schoolboys, basically, and end up going around the world, as I say, being very successful, making all their money and a whole career out of this kind of childhood dream that they've both made reality through just luck or hard work or combination of the two. And it's, it must be very weird. Yeah. And they always fall out, you know, like most bands fall out at some point, don't they? Yeah, they do eventually. And yeah. um, it's just a, quite a nice look at that kind of weird thing that happens in bands between between men. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's strange. You get you get um, some stuff about the way that rock stars can be like spoiled uh, prima donnas. I mean, like uh, where there are people working for the group who are responsible for all of the normal everyday things, like choosing their food. Um, and organising their transport and organising their accommodation and everything. And these guys, all they end up doing is just, they just live in this weird sort of infantilised world, this sort of world of arrested development where 
all the normal everyday things that we all have to deal with are all taken care of by someone else, which allows them to just live this crazy fantasy life. And it's kind of encouraged by the fans and the record company and everyone to stay as basically as children mm -hmm. and not to grow up because we want them to be like that crazy out there guy that's kind of like Peter Pan that can kind of, you want to believe that they're not normal people and they don't have to book tickets on the Eurostar and, you know, all the sort of mundane things. You like to think that they're these kind of deities almost. Yeah. But it just creates these massive children that can't cope and they get really stressed about really stupid things. So there's a scene with, with Nigel Tufnell backstage and he's complaining about the food. And can you remember some of the complaints that he has? Well, I like the way Ian says, I just don't want you to, I don't want this to affect your performance. You know, like, it's, it's a really patronising line. He should be saying, oh, fucking grow up, Grow twat. up, for Christ's sake. It's so, so some of these olives are different to the other olives. Yeah, Get over that's it. That's one of the complaints. Is Nigel's going, look, 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 right? So these olives here, they've got like this little red thing in here. And these ones have got nothing in it. I just can't, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't Am I supposed it. to work like this? Yeah. And he's going, on this bread, it's just bread. It's just too small. Like, you keep folding and it breaks in half and then you fold it again and it's you just end up with this and i don't want this i want proper bread well, i mean would you, you can, would you, would you eat this would you be holding this and uh you know he's <laughs> of course i'm a professional i'm not going to let it affect my performance you know but it's a joke it really is and, you know, <laughs> and, and again you, we've heard we've heard the stories of real rock bands who for example uh refuse to perform because things are not quite right backstage the water isn't cold enough or the uh the m&ms haven't had the brown ones taken out yeah or, like i don't know which band it was that, that's the famous well, thing is though that means someone's touched all your m&ms i yeah. don't want someone taking the brown the thing ones is, out this is a there, there is a real band and i don't know who it is i don't know if it's aerosmith i think it might be but uh apparently they what they requested backstage was bowls full of M&Ms, you know, those sweets, but they requested all of the, all of a certain color of M&Ms had to be removed from the bowls. And it was like the brown M&Ms or whichever M&Ms one guy in the band just doesn't like. So it's like, yes, we, we, we want a bowl of M&Ms with all the brown ones removed. They're all, that must be removed. And when the band got into the dressing room and they discovered the M&Ms and the brown ones hadn't been removed, they, um, you know, complained and refused to perform. And, you know, there's lots of stories of this sort of thing happening where if the backstage area is not exactly right, then it's a big problem. Um, so that's kind of what that's about. We see them performing another one of their songs called Hell Hole. And during Nigel's guitar solo, he leans back so far that he actually falls over onto his back and he can't get up. And roadies have to run on stage and prop him back up again. Yeah, he's lying on his back on the stage doing the guitar solo and he can't get up and he's like nodding to the roadies. Road, road crew. Roadies are these guys who come in and like set up the instruments and move the equipment and stuff. So a roadie has to come in and actually lift him back onto his feet. Um, his tr Their trousers are incredibly tight, um, like ridiculously tight to the point where you can see basically everything. <laughs> um, then we get maybe the most famous scene in the movie which is where Nigel Tufnell shows Marty DeBerge his guitars and it's like a, a room full of guitars let's just play that bit well I need to just say a couple of things in advance um, he, he introduces him to a couple of guitars well anyway I'll play it to you see if you can just understand it uh, but what is it that he's saying about the amplifier 
So he shows him all these guitars, including a guitar that, he, that he's never played, a guitar that has amazing sustain. Sustain is when a note carries on. For, for ages. So uh, like the best guitars, when you hold a note, the note will continue playing for a long time. And that's called sustain, right? So one of his, his guitars has got great sustain. He's got a guitar with a, a radio, um, like a remote, um, how do you describe it really? It's like, you know, when you pl normally you plug a guitar into an amplifier, but this has got one of those radio connections so that Nigel can go around the stage and he's always plugged in, you know, it's because it's, it's, he's connected by radio. Um, and then he talks about his amplifier, which has something special about it. So here we go. Let's listen to that scene. Play all, I mean, do you actually play all these or? Well, I play them and I cherish them. Mm -hmm. This is the top of the heap right here. There's no question about it. Look at the, look at the flame on that one. Yes. Look, I mean, it's just, it's quite unbelievable. This, this one is just, uh, it's perfect, 1959, uh, you know, it just, you can, uh, listen. How much is L this? Just listen for a minute. I'm the not, sustain, listen to it. I'm not hearing anything. You would, though, if it were playing, because yeah. it really, it's famous for its sustain. I mean, you can yeah. just hold it. Well, I mean, so you'd have to pull. You can go, go and have a bite. No, you'd still yeah. be hearing that one. Yeah. Can you hold it sustain? Sure. This one. This, of course, is a custom three pickup, Paul. This is my radio unit. Oh, so I, I see strap this, this piece on, you know, right down in here when I'm on stage. It's a wireless. Wireless, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I can play without all the marky mark. You can run anywhere on exactly. stage with that. Oh, this is special too, see. Look, see? Still got the, uh, the old tagger on it. See, never even played it. See? You just bought it. Don't touch it. I, don't well, touch I, I it. Wasn't gonna, I wasn't no going to touch one, it. No, don't touch it. I was it. just pointing at it. I, well, don't point even. Don't even point? Be, no, it can't be played. Never. I mean, I, Can I, I look I, at no. it? No. No, you've seen don't enough of that one. This is a top to uh, you know, what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah. the numbers all go to 11. Look. Right across the board, oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11, and then amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most, most blokes, you know, be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. <laughs> so, that is good. That is really good. The, um, so the first guitar is the Gibson, which has got a fantastic sustain. I love Gibson Les Paul. Ah. You can play that one. You can go out and have a bite and still be hearing that one. I mean, you can go out and have a bite to eat and the, the, the guitar will still be playing. Um, the other one is uh, his, his radio thing, which we heard. And the other one is the, the guitar that cannot even be played. No, it can never be played. No, you can't even... Can I look even, at it? Not even, no, you don't point. You You've seen enough of that one. Yeah. It can never be played. And then he talks about his amplifier. So the thing about the amplifier, listeners, was that all of the knobs go up to 11. You know, on amplifiers or most things, a toaster or whatever, the numbers normally go up to 10. But um, on this one, they, it's a custom-made amplifier and they've had it so that there's one extra number. So they go up to 11. So they're one louder. But obviously, Marty's like, well, why don't you just make 10 the loudest and just 
doesn't compute. He doesn't but understand. But these go up to eleven. Yeah, but like, why don't you just make ten the loudest number? <laughs> just make a make that louder and just make it ten. It's like yeah, but after a long pause, yeah, but these these go to eleven. But that's become a like thing now. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed on the BBC iPlayer, the volume goes up to eleven. Lots of different things. The yeah. volume goes up to 11 on lots of things. Yeah, the BBC iPlayer, which is like the sort of Netflix, but for the BBC, and it's their volume control goes up to 11. And lots of other things, which is definitely... It's become part of the, 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 the popular consciousness of whatever. And to say that something goes up to 11 is just a way of saying that it's kind yeah, of... Yeah, they turned know. the so-and-sos up to 11 on this one. Yeah, meaning they really pushed it over the cliff. It's a bit like saying 110%, isn't it? Yeah. Which is impossible. You can't give it 110%. Uh, Why not make it 100% is the 100%. Just make 100% the, the top the level. It's like, yeah, but these go to 110%. <laughs> <laughs> and that sort of, you know, Nigel's got that very stupid sort of uh, voice, you know. He's the character we heard about before, you know. Uh, where's your base? Uh, I think I left it at the airport. He's my favourite though, Nigel. Yeah. I love Nigel. Everyone's favourite is Nigel. He's something... He's the purest one. He's he's really sweet, isn't he, actually, in a way. Yeah. Um, he's he's lovely, Nigel, and um, he's like a child, yeah. They are like children. It's it's really funny. Well, they do say when you join like showbiz or rock and roll, you stay the same age mentally as you are when you start because mm -hmm. from then, at that point on, like you said, everything's kind of taken care of for you and you're kind of pampered. Yeah. So if you join a band at 15, as these guys probably did, then you basically keep a mental age of 15. Yeah, a state of arrested development, yeah. as they say. Um, they, they're cancelled in various towns. The tour goes from bad to worse. Um, now, now, Davidson Hubbins, who's basically the lead singer, he's got a girlfriend who I think is back in England, and um, she joins them in the middle of the tour. Now, Janine, who's the girlfriend, she's basically Yoko Ono, right? She's English, but well, she represents that person. And she represents that kind of... I mean, it is a bit sexist, but he's probably quite accurate that... I don't know if it's accurate, but it's a kind of thing in rock that getting women involved in a band of men is like always, always causes problems. Well, what you said before about how a lot... Of often these bands at their core have a male relationship, hmm. which is sort of seems to be the driving force behind yeah. it all. And then when, you, when one of them gets hooked up in a serious way with a girl, that somehow... Skews that relationship. Messes things somehow. up. Yeah. Exactly like Lennon and McCartney with Yoko Ono. Yeah. Now, it's, in reality, it's much more complicated than that. But the simple reading of the situation is that the girl comes in and she ruins everything. And she kind of becomes a, dry, a, a wedge between the two guys and it spoils yeah. the whole uh, dynamic. And so that's basically what Jean, Janine represents. She is the Yoko of the, of the group. Um, and uh, I mean, for example, the, we first get introduced to her when David is having a phone call with her and he's sort of talking about the cancelled shows and she's giving him some sympathy and stuff. And she says, at the end, David says... Um, Oh, yeah, Janine's going to come and join us. It's fantastic. And she says, oh, yeah, she can tell over the phone. She can tell I've been having too much sugar. She says my larynx is fat. Good line. Good line. Your larynx is like the, the part of your throat. Um, so, yeah, that's ridiculous. So, so yeah, she comes in. Not only does she start to try and take control of things, she's controlling David's diet. She controls lots of things. She's the sort of the controlling girlfriend, basically. I like when he says, you know, 
I was, you know, using whatever bits of Middle Eastern philosophy had entered my... Uh, my transom. My transom. And Janine's kind of sorted it all out for me and, you know, kind of like got me on the right path spiritually. Yeah. And it's just the kind of bullshit that people do come out with. Yeah, and also there's the sense that maybe Janine is... A bit controlling, maybe. She's controlling him and maybe he is... Uh, happy to be controlled. Happy to be controlled, but also she's saying all this bullshit to him and he's just buying it because he's, he's bit, in love with her. A bit fried as well. He's in love with her and maybe, yeah, maybe a little bit worse to wear for drugs, which is again, very similar to the John Lennon situation where John was actually in a very bad way around the time that he first met Yoko and she managed to kind of, what some people say is that she kind of like manipulated her way right into the middle of the situation and... Uh, well, of, I think John wanted her to yeah. though he so he did too he he's used, mini, he 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 was ha you know he wanted something and he found her and he was happy i don't know I'm, I'm not part of the yoko haters club no neither am i but, but I, I also think she's not great either i mean when she sings on some of those recordings it's pretty poor yeah but um i think john knew what he was doing and he's you know he wanted that in his life yeah he yeah. Was obviously needed a hard a sort of slightly harsher woman to put him in his place a bit very complicated. Obviously. Very complicated. Human, We're talking about the Beatles again. Human relationships. Um, the, there's a funny scene where they're they're in a hotel with some groupies and stuff, and they're listening to the radio. And at one point, you know, uh, one of their songs comes on, one of their old songs from the '60s. And the the uh, radio DJ after they're all sitting round listening. The groupies are listening. The younger, newer members of the group are listening in, going, "Oh wow, man, this is really cool." And then afterwards, the the DJ goes, "That was uh, Spinal Tap there with uh, what was the name of the song? Cups and Cakes." And Spinal Tap currently residing in the Where Are They Now files. So that the Where Are They Now file is like if it's basically a category for bands, meaning that they have now drifted into obscurity. No one knows who they are. They're not really successful or famous like they used to be. Where are they now? They're currently residing in the Where Are They Now file. And the band look round <laughs> at each other and they just look really disappointed and a bit sad. And considering they're supposed to be on a uh, US tour, which should have had some publicity, yeah. suggests they maybe haven't had as much publicity as they should have had. Yeah, it should be like, everyone should know where they are. They're performing, everyone should know who they are and where they are. Yeah, they're performing live in Boston tonight, but no, no, no one knows. So clearly the record company has failed them. The manager has failed them. I mean, but they don't think of that. They just, they're just hurt. Yeah. Yeah. But I just think it just shows things are not quite right in the, the tap camp. Yeah. And the, the, the solution from, from David and Janine is that Janine basically becomes the manager of the group. Yeah. Uh, which is also not a good idea because she's got no idea what she's doing. I mean, she doesn't. Yeah, and she's she's obviously very biased towards David's position, where a manager should try and balance everyone's yeah interests, m mainly themselves. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So things are going really badly, and at one point they're in in Memphis, and they they actually visit Elvis's grave. Oh, they, look, can we play that bit? I will. They visit Elvis's grave. Um, and pay their respects to the king of rock and roll. And it really is Elvis's grave, isn't it's it? It's not Elvis's. Is it it's not? not? It's not, no. It's just in a park somewhere in, in Sonora. Oh, really? In California or something. Um, I always thought it was the real Graceland. Is not, he buried in Graceland? He yeah, must he be, is, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it's not really Elvis's grave. They've just got <laughs> oh. loads of flowers. And, 
uh, which is and a hound dog. Like one of the flowers is a dog. Yeah, yeah. Which I always thought was too. That's why I thought it was real because I just thought you wouldn't go to that extent of making flowers in the shape of a dog. Yeah. Yeah, but they obviously did. No, they they did a good job on recreating Elvis's grave, and they stand there and they're sort of like uh, they decide to try and start singing one of his songs, uh, "Heartbreak Hotel." <laughs> Since my rhythm. baby left me, I've had a new place to dwell, and they try and do it in harmony, and the harmonies go all wrong, and uh, they get sort of test tetchy with each other. Like, no, that doesn't sound right. That's bar. It sounds too barbershop. It's, it's raga, raga, raga. Is like what? It's like in, is that Indian music, which is very sort of um, atonal. I think it's kind of a drone on a bass on a drone, like yes. one note that's kind of goes. Ah, and it's, it's not exactly like the. Hum- I might be wrong. I might be wrong about that. By the way, don't don't yeah. get upset if I'm wrong. Um, there, uh, it's not exactly the kind of harmonic music that you get in you know uh, western pop music um, let's where, just play it yeah so let's play it yes okay here we go this is them in, in front of elvis's grave that's elvis's grave though right it's, it's it's not it's not it's a it's a fake it's a, it's a mock it's a mock-up yeah i'm not really sure this was such a great idea i mean i don't feel any better than i did at the hotel he was going to do a uh, TV special from here before he died. Yeah, that's right. A musical version of Somebody Up There Likes Me. Mm. <sighs> well, since my baby left me, I found a new place mm. to dwell. Mm. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that heartbreak hotel. Do, do it with the harmony parts. All right. Well, since, since my, my baby... baby. The same key, though, I think. Well, since my baby left me, if I'm going, since my baby left me, me. No, you can't hit that note. Since my, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. That's all right. Well, it sounds raga. You don't want to go raga. No, not with this. It don't. It does. Since my baby sounds fucking barbershop. Well, hey, barbershop raga. Watch the, watch the language. It's a new hybrid. king. Sorry. Oh, this is thoroughly depressing. It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Too much. There's too much fucking perspective now. <laughs> I, think, I think he laughed in the background then, didn't he? Who? What's his name? What, Derek uh, Smalls. Derek Smalls laughs. Yeah, that line, it, uh, Nigel's like, well, this certainly puts perspective on things though, doesn't it? And David's like, yeah, well, too much. Too much, too much. <laughs> That's fucking, just on the spot, isn't it? Too much fucking perspective. Like, can you have too much perspective? I don't know, but... You can if you think you're important and then you realise how unimportant you are. Too, I suppose that would be too much perspective. Too much fucking perspective. Janine arrives um, while they're practicing and they, you know, we see David and Janine get reunited and then the album cover for Smell the Glove. So the first um, pressings of the new album arrive in a box and we get to see the, the actual genuine album cover and it's just completely black. It's just a totally black cover because they couldn't think of what else to put on and also there's that line that bobby comes out with earlier about the white album that obviously gives him an idea to say yeah let's just do a a black album it's just completely black yeah which metallica did a few years after didn't they i think so without any sense of irony i don't think that yeah i mean that 
Yeah, they weren't. <laughs> they, they weren't, weren't doing, doing that a spinal as a joke. They weren't no. doing that as a joke. Metallica just goes to show how dumb these rock bands really are. Yeah, it's like, don't you realise that Spinal Tap already did already the black did that album. as a joke? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's literally black. And they and that you know, Ian's like, okay, here's the new album, guys, have a look. And they open it. It's like, what is this? It's like a mirror. It's like a black mirror. One of them says, looks like black leather. And um, and then Ian is defending it. It's like, and he's going, Ian's going, yeah, it's like death. You know, every film and every cinema is about death. Death sells. And Nigel's line is like, you know, this makes you think, you know, how, how much more black can this be? And the answer is none. None more black. Here it is. This is a stay, isn't it? Here it is, lads. You better turn. Smell the gloves, me old booties. Gather around. Where's David? Are you kidding? David, David, get up here. David, smell the glove is here. Hello, Janine. At the moment, we've all been waiting for you. Here we go. I'd like to see the day. Plenty for everybody. Wait a minute. A little fantasy. What do you think? Is this the test pressing? No, this is it. Yes, this is right. Smell the glove by that's, Spinal Tap. When you that's smell the glove. That's the, that's the jacket cover that's going out across the country so the compromise every store. Yes. Is it going to say anything here? It doesn't even say no, anything. it's not going to say anything. On the so it's just going to be like this, all It's going to be that simple, beautiful, it, classic. It does look like, you know, black leather. You can yeah. see yourself in both sides. I wouldn't yeah. feel so bad. Yeah. It's like a black mirror. So bad. Yeah, it, it is. Like well, I think it looks like death. David, it looks death. like morning. Every movie in every cinema is about death. Death sells. I think he's right. There's something about this that, that, that's so black. It's like, how much more black could this be? And the answer is none. None is that good? more black. Mm -hmm. I think you're, like, you're like rationalising this whole thing like into something that you you did on on purpose. You know, I think we're stuck with a very no, very no, stupid no, and a very and a very dismal looking album. This is David, depressing. Choice. This is something David. you wear around your arm. You don't put this on your fucking turntable. David, it's a choice. I it, frankly think that this is the turning point. Okay. I think it's I think, I think this is we're on our way now. You know, it's yeah, time I agree, to. I agree. It's time I agree. to kick ass. We have. One of my favourite sequences in the film next, which is them performing uh, one of their songs on stage, it's called Rock and Roll Creation. And the, the, so the, this is a sort of a concept track. And during the performance, there were these three plastic pods on stage, right? Like the sort of like a chrysalis, like chrysalis, the sort of thing that an insect would emerge from after it had gone through a metamorphosis or an alien. So these three pods are on stage. And the song is called Rock and Roll Creation. And the idea is that in the beginning of the song, the band, the, the pods open and the guys emerge from the pods and play their parts. Um, and, uh, but the problem is, so David's pod opens, he comes out. Nigel's pod opens, he comes out. But Derek's pod gets stuck and he's trapped inside the pod all through the song. It's probably the most obvious comedic, scene in the film i think yes. the most obvious funny bit yeah because it's kind of slapstick basically where they're trying to hammer away at this thing out of time <laughs> that, so while like the, the they still perform the song david and nigel and i like the fact that david and nigel are having a little chat during the song yeah, as well they're, and they're, they're like shouting each other like well do that yeah they're performing and derek is performing his bass parts inside the pod uh, and then <laughs> the, a roadie comes out to try and rescue Derek from his from this pod, and he tries. First of all, he tries a hammer, and, and during a, the quiet bit with the with the synth arpeggio and the sort of harmonic singing, the hardest bit to do. 
the the guys whacking on this pod out of time with a lump hammer. <laughs> and you're like, this is really not going to help them keep in time. They do it, though. I actually... I and think they, they even goes at it with a flame... Th- like a... F- not a flamethrower, one of those little... Um, yeah, a little, little sort of... Um, what are they called? Blowtorch. Blowtorch. Rock. And I'm going to play that little section um, where, you know, in some of these overblown rock songs... They have a section in the middle. Like the Who, basically. Where things break down and it's a bit quieter. There's no drums. And maybe the bass player is doing some elaborate bass part. And it's during that that the guy, the roadie, is hammering at the back of the plastic pod with a huge hammer. Also also right where Derek's head is, (laughs) which makes it even more funny visually. Um, I can't play the whole song, but I want to play that little section just so you hear the out-of-time hammering. Black Sabbath. Yeah. They jump out of the pods. Well, anyway, you just, I wanted to hear you to hear that hammering. Maybe but, it's just from being in a band. You just know that just the worst thing that could happen during that complicated bit of that song. <laughs> and the way that David and Nigel are both like really unhappy and they keep having these conversations between the singing. And um, what else happens? Uh, finally, they finally, Derek gets released from the pod but the song has finished. Like the song, he's released right at the moment that the song finishes. David and Nigel have gone back into their pods, which have closed. And just at that moment, Derek's pod springs open. He leaps out, but then realizes that the other guys have gone back in. He tries to jump back into his pod, but the pod closes just as he's leaping into it and he gets trapped halfway into the pod. So he's like half in, half out of the pod. The song is finished and he just looks at the audience and just raises his arm in the air in sort of triumph in that rock and roll way. Like, yeah, just still raise my arm up, but I'm half stuck in a plastic chrysalis. <laughs> it's, it's great. James has gone to the toilet. I'm going to carry on uh, as uh, I'm going to carry on without him. Let's imagine James is trapped inside a plastic chrysalis uh, for this next bit. Okay, so the next scene is one of my favourite scenes in the film, another one of my favourites, and this is where we have an interview with Nigel Tufnell on his own. So this is Marty, the director, talking to Nigel on his own. And Nigel is sitting at the piano, and he reveals... um, a piece of music that he's been working on for the piano and it shows us, it appears to show us a slightly more sensitive, slightly more sophisticated, grown up side of Nigel where he reveals he's been working on this piece on the piano. It's influenced by Mozart and Bach. It's very sensitive. He talks in, it's actually a really lovely piece of music, but listeners, what's the joke here? Okay. I want you to try and identify what the joke is. Um, all right. Um, so, um, here we go. Let's listen to that clip and let's see what the, see if you can identify where the joke is here. Okay, here we go. (laughs) 
been fooling about with it for a few months now. Very delicate. It's a, it's a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. Yeah, well, it's part of a, uh, a trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys, really. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play a... It's a horn part. It's very pretty. You know, just simple lines intertwining. You know, very much like I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach, and it's sort of in between though. It's really, it's like a Mach piece, really. It's, what do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. Did you catch that? What's the name of the piece? It's called Lick My Love Pump, which uh, is the... Really Lick My Love Pump, is, it sounds like something sexual, doesn't it? Certainly not the, uh, the sort of title you would uh, pick for a lovely piece of music like that. So even though we think for a moment that Nigel is sophisticated and sweet and he's got this deep side to him, no, the song is still called uh, Lick My Love Pump. Brilliant piece of music. Yeah. You can play that, can't you? Yeah, you I, like, it. I like to play that on the piano. It's very good, that's it. Um, so, I can see the name Artie Fufkin. Artie Fufkin, Polymer Records. One of the greatest characters. Yeah. The, the band goes through airport security and uh, the the security gate goes off, the, the magnetic security gate goes off. It turns out Derek Smalls has got a... What is it? Small, well, sort of a medium to small size cucumber down his pants to bulk out his uh, kind of... Wrapped in tinfoil. And they do actually say in the commentary, why do you wrap it in cling for? Well, it's well, it's it fresh, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, you don't want a cucumber in your don't pants. Want a, a goes, soggy cucumber. It's all soggy. You've got to keep it fresh. So the sort of pants swellingness yeah. has been enhanced by a cucumber, basically. Like, like that Derek Smalls keeps a, cu- a, a cucumber in his trousers to, to make himself look even more um, well endowed than he is. It's all part of the rock and roll image. Myth. And myth, mythage, image, image. It's a, uh, it's the, another bit of slapstick in the film, really, isn't it? A kind yeah. of obvious, obvious visual, visual gag. Visual gag. That's ex- right. Pardon the expression. We we then in some town or other somewhere we get to meet Artie Fufkin, Polymer Records. He's awesome. Who introduces himself about a million times? Hi guys, nice to meet you, Artie Fufkin, Polymer Records. And there's a good visual gag. He introduces himself to about eight people on camera. And then when he gets close to the camera, then the caption comes up, Artie Fufkin. Like, we know, he just said it eight times. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Artie Fufkin. Hi, Artie. Polymer Records, how are you? Hey, how are you doing? Right. You are Derek. Derek. Artie yeah. Fufkin, Polymer Records, how Hello, are you? Artie. I'm your promo man here in Chicago. Oh, that's great. great. I love you guys. Yeah. And of course, Nigel, Nigel. I love you. Nigel Tufno. Right. I love your stuff. I go back with you guys. Boy, yeah. do I. Artie Fufkin, Polymer Records, right, yeah. I love you. And who are you, darling? Oh, this is my special new friend. Cindy. Hello, Cindy. And this is Belinda. Um, hello, Belinda. Artie Fufkin, nice Polymer Records, yeah. promo. And I'm, oh, what's going on here? Hi. Oh, Hi, guys. Out. Artie Fufkin, Polymer Records. Nice to see you. And where is <laughs> David? Oh, David. <laughs> Hi, Artie Fufkin. How are you? It's nice to see you. We've got something exciting happening tomorrow. <laughs> Artie Fufkin, Polymer <laughs> Records. Like, we know he said that eight times already. Uh, he's supposed, you know, there's supposed to be some kind of uh, publicity event, but literally no one turns up. And it turns out that Artie somehow screwed up. Again, and maybe an, another one of the most famous scenes is them getting lost uh, backstage. So they're performing at a show in Cleveland um, and they are 
in, you see them in the dressing room. They're all getting psyched up, ready to go up on stage. It's time for them to go on. So they start making their way towards the stage. But it's one of those big American rock venues and they can't find the stage. They get lost. And it's um, the, the, or the audio for that isn't that great because it's mainly a visual gag again, but it's them trying to find their way through the back passages of the venue. They can hear the crowd. They just yeah. can't find how to get there. And the, the, you can see where they go wrong. This is another thing where you can watch it multiple times because it says, this is not an exit, big sign, which basically means this this is the stage. Yeah, this is not because an exit you don't from the write, building. You don't write this is the stage because otherwise you get randoms jumping on the stage, but you just write this is not an exit. And they go, well, we don't want an exit. And they, exhort, they ignore it. Right. So they don't go down that through that door that says this is not an exit because they think, well, we don't want an exit. They so they get lost circles. and they end up with a, like a, a plumber or something trying to give them directions. It's like, we're going to, you have to turn left here and you're going to see a little jog to the left <laughs> and just go up there and then that's the stage. And it's like, okay, all right, come on, you know, hello Cleveland. Rock and roll, rock, rock and, and roll. roll. Hello, Don't Cleveland. lose the energy, rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Yeah. It's going to be a hot one, isn't it? No, it's not an exit. Not an exit. We don't want an exit. No, that's true. Oh, this way. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, this way. Wait. This looks familiar, though. Listen. It really does. Shit. No. Let's not lose it, though. Let's not lose it. Who the fuck is he? You know, he should be here. We've got to get to us somewhere. We've been on the stage. We're in the group. We're in the group that's playing tonight. You go right straight through this door here, down the hall. Yeah. Turn right. Yeah. And then there's a little jog there, about 30 jog. feet. Jog to we the left. We don't have time for that. Go straight okay. ahead. We'll go straight you. ahead. Yeah. Turn right the next two corners. And the first door you sign, authorized personnel only. Yeah. Open that door. That's the stage. You think so? You authorize. You're bringing musicians, aren't you? Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Rock and roll. All right. Rock and roll. Yeah. Let's get it. Let's get it. This way. No. This way. This way. This way. Rock and roll. And they're all really psyched up, but then they end up going in a circle and find themselves back to the same guy who's just given them directions. <laughs> Meanwhile, the audience are all screaming and shouting for a spinal tap. Um, and yeah, I mean, I got lost backstage. Have you, have I told you, I've told you yeah, that story. I don't know if I've told that story on the podcast. So uh, last year I, um, opened for Paul Taylor at the Grand Rex, which is one of the biggest venues in Paris. And the room had... I know Grand means big. Yeah. I'm big, that good at French. The big Rex. I don't know what the Rex part is, but anyway, it's a huge venue and it's it seats over 2,000 people. And there were over 2,000 people in the show. And so Paul was doing his, his normal show, uh, but he asked a couple of other comedians to perform 
before him. So I went up and I did five minutes right at the beginning of the show in front of over 2,000 people. It was amazing. And it was a real adrenaline rush. And there were lots of people there as well, you know, backstage, you know, friends, family and stuff were there. It was a bit of a party. And so I went up on stage, I did my show, it went well. And I was really, the adrenaline was really pumping. So it's a big place. So to get from the stage to the dressing room area, you need to take a lift, which takes you down about three or four floors until you get to the dressing room. And I was like, right, what I'll do is I'll go down to the dressing room, I'll get myself a beer from the fridge, and then I'll come back to the immediate backstage area and hang out and enjoy my moment of glory of having just, you know, done quite well in front of 2000 people. I went down, got my beer, came back and I didn't realise that there was so, yeah, I got back in the lift and I didn't know which floor the stage was on. So I was like, hmm, it's probably the second floor. I'll try the second floor. And if, I, if that's not right, I'll try another floor. So I came out at the second floor, got out of the lift, and I thought, oh, it must be just around the corner. Went around the corner, the lift doors closed behind me. And then I realised, wait a minute, no, this isn't the right place at all. I went back to what I thought was the lift and got in that. And then went, basically, I got in the wrong lift the second time. And I was in a completely different part of the building, in a completely different stairwell. And it didn't matter which floor I, I, I visited, it was neither the, the stage nor the, back, nor the backstage area. How long were you lost for? About half an hour. So you missed the party. Yeah. And thank goodness I had my phone, actually, because if I hadn't had my phone, I might have been lost the entire You'd evening. still be there now. Because the, the lift that took me to that part of the building wasn't accessible from the other side. So I couldn't get back in that lift because well, the doors wouldn't open from that side. a weird bit of planning. Yeah. So the lift let me out of that floor, but wouldn't let me back in. And what I didn't, and there was another lift opposite. And I didn't realize I was trying to get in the wrong oh, lift. Sounds horrible. So I had a beer. <laughs> so I was like drinking my beer, but I was going up and down stairs, going up and down, trying every floor. And I was like, this is ridiculous. What's going on? And there, I was in a part of the building where there were like people's apartment doors. So I was just in some residential building. Meanwhile, trying all the doors, ah, looking for the trying party. to get back to the party, and I'm just in someone's corridor. Yeah, weird. And it so that was really weird. Eventually, I managed to get in touch with someone and ask them to rescue me and they came and opened the lift from the other side and I was able to, think to escape. If I've ever ever had any spinal tap moments, but I don't think I've I have, unfortunately. Well just being in a band, I mean there's loads of spinal tap moments. Another one I had was when Oh no, I won't I, I mean I've had lots of band it. arguments mm -hmm. that are quite spinal tap. Yeah. Arguing like about little details and stuff. Arguing about who made a mistake in this track. And it's like, well the argument goes, you you fucked up. Well, both of us, fuck, us two fucked up together and you were left on your own. So shouldn't you just follow the song? If two people fuck up, shouldn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like It's like, well, you you fucked up and I don't care if you'd have fucked up because he's only the bass player. No one notices what the bass player's doing. <laughs> and it's like, the drummer fucked up, you fucked up. It's like, yeah, well, okay, I fucked up, but we both, we were fucked up together and you were the one on your own not doing the So the we stuff. were right. We, well, you should have just followed us, you know, and like, things like that. <laughs> yeah. Where's your bass? I, I don't know, I think I left it at the airport. And, you know, it gets really tense and it gets really angry and people leave and people go off 
Alfred Huffs and yeah, the, the people get really upset and angry. Uh, like, uh, you know, there's almost tears and there's almost violence. You know, meted out. You get and, a split in the band where yeah. there's like between usually the two principal members, as you mentioned before. When they split, then it splits the band up completely, and then you're in the world of like stupid uh school level drama yeah between friends and it's totally pathetic and that band that we were in salvo that was lots of that that happened a lot when i was in it and it happened in quite a big way between chris and aaron the, the two guys the two main songwriters, songwriters. And they they fell out like with, fire and ice yeah they are yeah that's what it was like they fell out with each other and um and i just observed this sort of falling out this um um, almost like adolescent yeah. argument, this dispute between them, which was like, what's it based on? I don't know. And what's it really about, you know? Yeah. There's an important scene in the in this film now where they're in a restaurant and they're discussing, they're kind of discussing what's going wrong. And they're talking about the album. And Janine, who doesn't know anything about music and making, recording music and the rest of it, She's chipping in with her views on it. And what she say? She says, you know, oh, it would have been better if it had been done in, in Dobley. Now, I don't know if... Is Dolby a thing still these days? Mm, yeah, but it's not widely... More like when you go to the cinema, you see it says this this, cinema, this film is presented in Dolby. My surrounds. phone has actually got Dolby on it, right? which is weird because it's a Motorola, which is like the budget phone. Okay. It's a stereo system of some sort. There was a time it? in the 80s or it's maybe... a stereo system, maybe, isn't it? Yeah, maybe 70s or 80s that this thing called Dolby Stereo was introduced and it was a sort of a way of mixing music so that it made it sound better because it was in stereo. And you, you might remember, if those, you know, depending on your age, that Walkmans or tape players or stereos had a Dolby logo or a Dolby button yeah. and you could turn it on and off but and stuff. Stereo is a bit of a novelty really, isn't it? Stereo I mean, sound. Yeah, most of the music that I make, not that it's anything to judge anything by, but um, I make most of my music in mono. Yeah. Because it's a lot easier. Not yes. always. Sometimes I use stereo, but... Um, mono means one channel. And a lot of dance music is made in mono because otherwise you've got like... Yeah, Paul McCartney talks about it. You've got the guitars coming out of one channel, and then extreme stereo. You've got the bass coming out of another channel, and then the drums coming out of. A lot of music in the '60s was mixed um, in order to replicate what it was like being in a room watching a band. And in a in a room watching a band, the drum, the bass player would be over there, the guitarist would be over there, and the drums would might be not necessarily in the middle. And so you get the idea that you are. The bass and guitar come from the left side, and yeah. the drums and uh, the keys or whatever come from the other side. You know side. how they mix it now? They mix it now as if you're sitting behind the drum kit and the band's facing you. Right. So when there's drum rolls, they go from left to right. Phil Collins did that first. Did he? Yeah. Well, he's... Well done, Phil. Nice one, Phil. Not a complete waste of time then. Yeah, but um, anyway, Dolby. So she's saying, oh, it would have sounded better if it had been done in Dobley. So she's calling it Dobbly. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And, um, and Nigel takes glee at this as her obvious mistake. Nigel makes fun of her for it. And this is really what this is about is the split between David and Nigel. And it's Janine that's kind of like got in between the two of them. And, um, and then Janine and David reveal a new idea for the stage uh, image of the band and it's signs of the zodiac 
right? So you've got like, you know, Sagittarius and Cancer and Pisces and stuff. And it's also part of her sort of hippy dippy. Yeah. Because the Zodiac's bollocks. We all know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's just. <laughs> It's just more kind of waffle, really. It's it's just it, and it's terrible. She shows these illustrations, which look like they've been done by a, a sort of a twelve-year-old girl in her bedroom. And also, surprisingly, David, her hubby or her boyfriend, gets the kind of glamorous lion or something, and then they, Derek gets a crab because <laughs> he's got cancer. De- De- so basically, the the, and, wait, and, the illustrations uh, are um, meant to represent what. The members of the band are going to look sign what they're they going to look like. So, so yeah. they're going to be dressed up and given makeup uh, to make them look like their star sign. David, being Leo, is is like a lion, but Derek is a, is Cancer, which is a crab, and so he's going to he unfortunately he's going to be dressed up like a crab on stage. <laughs> and and uh, uh, Nigel, Nigel, is, it's like a goat or something. He's a goat. Is yeah. there a goat in the star sign? Yeah. So she's. Um, I don't. Yeah, Sagittarius is a ghost, isn't it? Yeah, I don't remember. Anyway, but um, uh, she's showing everyone, and Nigel looks really disappointed and not happy with it. And clearly, things are going really bad, and Nigel is unhappy with the situation. And um, they disagree and argue. He makes fun of her again, and then Nigel comes in with a solution, which is that they do a performance of their rock opera song Stonehenge which is all about Stonehenge you know the the ancient um, stone circle in in England and he's like you know and he writes on a napkin uh, he he draws the design of a Stonehenge model which will be a prop on stage it's very simple you know it's meant to be a huge uh, model of Stonehenge it's 18 feet high and it's meant to descend from above during the sh- during the song, and it's a very impressive moment in the performance. And so this is like his suggestion of what they can do, and it's very simple. And so he draws a di- diagram of Stonehenge on a napkin, and he appears to what he he writes the specifications of the size on it, but as we later discover, he's he's written it in inches rather than in feet. Yes, right, because when you you know you write inches or feet you can just write two little lines that represent inches or one line represents feet yeah and so he writes it with two lines which is actually inches so he's basically designed a small model which is about the size of um you know it's about the size of a of a of a <laughs> microwave of a oven. toaster it, no smaller it's about the size of a toaster 18 inches is quite big though. anyway That's like <clears throat> anyway bigger the, than a toaster the thing is really small yeah. It's tiny. It's like a little model of Stonehenge instead. Well, we see the, the meeting between the model designer, who's Angelica Houston. Yeah, an actress making a sort of cameo. And appearance. Ian, the manager. Yeah, so the and girl, that's a funny bit. The woman who's designed the model based on Nigel's uh, specifications, she presents it to Ian. And he's like, so what is this? Like a, just a, uh, a preview or a model? And, and she's like, no, this is this is the piece. And then... Uh, Ian is so upset that he basically allows this tiny Stonehenge model to be um, used on stage. Yeah, that's one decision we don't quite... I think he's just too spineless so, to admit that he's fucked it up, so he just uh, he just drops it on them. He's so fed up maybe with the band at this point that it's, it is Nigel's fault. I mean, he wrote the wrong 
numbers on the diagram. Yeah, but it's not his job to be as confused. Not your job to be as confused as Nigel. So this becomes a huge problem where in the middle of this performance where they're expecting a huge Stonehenge model to descend from the top of the stage, it's a tiny little model and it's, it's ridiculous and they all look really stupid. And they've also, to make it worse, they've got dwarfs on stage dancing around Stonehenge to make the monument look massive. Yeah. But obviously the, the monument's smaller than the dwarfs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's much smaller than the dwarves and they're all shocked and stunned and it makes them look very stupid. And afterwards, there's a huge argument backstage. Uh, so I'm going to I'm gonna play those It's also and- a little bit about how it, British rock bands are kind of obsessed with kind of... Celtic. Celtic, ancient kind of... Well, pa- they play pa- up. They pagan, play up a bit of this... Uh, pagan imagery and mythology. You get, I mean, Led- they really have nothing above anyone else you know led zeppelin don't know anything more about pagan or you know ancient british monuments than anyone else does but that you know they're just seen as somehow a bit more you know sort of spiritual Myst- mystical, and mystical and spiritual and because they sing about sing about misty mountaintops and stuff that's you know? lord of the rings you know yeah yeah well there you go it's kind of all part of that stuff world yeah the sort of um the slight pretentiousness to be honest of, of british rock music of like we're going to talk about you know like pixies and you know stonehenge and uh you know ancient <laughs> runes and the druids where they really stuff. don't know what they're talking about they've got no clue <laughs> no, they're like, not history like professors the song you know? the song stonehenge is a good example of that because the, the when you hear the lyrics it which it was written by nigel i think you know it's like um um the dew drops cry and cats meow. Yeah, we can show you. But it. no, he does a he does a sort of a monologue at the beginning of the song. Like no one knows why they were there or where they were come from. No one knows who they were or what they were doing. Well, anyway, let's let's start by playing that argument about Dobley. You know, it should have been done in Dolby and then the zodiac signs and then nigel suggesting uh, stonehenge as a good uh, solution to their to their to their problem okay let's have that first really cursed us in ways believe me we're getting some very substantial reports of airplane <laughs> stop it there what that's a brilliant bit of manager speak we're getting very substantial reports of airplay so it's not quite the same as saying we're getting very substantial airplay we're getting very substantial reports of airplay so there's some reports that we think are quite credible of airplay. So the reports are substantial. The airplay is the not... airplay isn't. Yeah, we're very getting very substantial reports of airplay. Substantial meaning big. Well, solid. Or yeah. yeah, like we're getting very reports. So there's there's a quite a good chance that there's been some airplay. Yeah, but it's not <laughs> quite the same as saying we've had substantial airplay. But yeah. it sounds like they are. Yeah, that's very quiet. You it's can't clever. Hear- it's very good. It's, Ian's full of little phrases like that. You can't hear that. It's very quiet at the beginning, but it's just Ian, yeah, bullshitting, doing, bullshitting everyone around him. Really cursed us in ways. Believe me, we're getting some very substantial reports of airplay. I don't think we have to worry about that. You know, it might have been better if the. Uh album had been mixed right. Well, you know, it's it, 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 it,
You couldn't hear the lyrics on all of it. You don't agree that you can't hear the vocals? No, I do. I do not agree, no. no well, I think not. maybe it's interesting that she's bringing it up. Yeah. Well, she'd like to hear it's the vocals. I mean, it's she like you're saying, you know, you, you're using your own conditioner for your hair. You know, it's, it's, I don't it's, be it looks no, sort of... Well, it's uh, true, you, you, you don't do heavy yeah. metal in Dublin, you know? I mean, in what? Like, so let's just let's just move to the bit where Nigel suggests that they do Stonehenge and he offers a design for the uh, the monument. Okay. I've got one. Oh, let's hear yours. Let's hear your suggestion. Stonehenge. 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 Best production value we've ever had on stage. Oh, we haven't got the equipment. We haven't got it. We don't. Let's stop. We haven't got. Please, please, just a moment. Musically, musically, we all know it. Musically, we all know it, right? No problems musically. We go right on stage, and it's quite simple. So, you know, Ian can take. He's drawing it now on the napkin. This is. I know what the Stonehenge monument looks like. We don't have that piece of scenery anymore. I know. So we build a new one. This is it. Consider it done. Consider it done, says Ian, folding up the napkin and putting it in his pocket. He's like, consider it done. So basically Ian says, yeah, I'll do it. I'm going to, I'll come up with it. And that next we skip to the bit where the girl, the woman who made the, the prop, the model is presenting it to Ian. And Ian is like, what is that? This is it. And then they have a bit of an argument about it. So wait a minute. They're sitting there. It's on the coffee table in front of them. Yeah. It's about the size of a, a large microwave oven, as you said. <laughs> it's it's uh, Thank you. It's not the size of a toaster, a huge toaster. But anyway, it's, it's like, you know, it's very small. It's like the size of a, a small chair, right? Okay. And they're just sitting in front of it talking about it. This looks absolutely perfect. I mean, it's... Uh the right proportions it'll be this color right yeah 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 that's 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 just terrific i mean it almost looks uh looks like the real thing oh, got it yeah when we get the actual uh, set when we get the piece it'll it'll follow exactly these specifications i mean even these contours and everything um i don't that, understand you uh but i mean the actual piece well when we i mean when when you build the actual piece uh, but this is what you asked for isn't it what well this is the piece this is the piece Yes. Are you telling me that this is it? This is scenery? Have you ever been to Stonehenge? No, the I haven't been to Stonehenge. Are, the triptychs are 20 feet high. You can stand four men up. Ian, I was... I was this I was is, this is insane. This isn't a piece inches. of scenery. Look, look, look. This is what I was asked to build. 18 inches right here. It specifies 18 inches. <laughs> I was given this napkin. I mean... Forget this. Fuck the napkins. <laughs> <laughs> and then so we actually get the scene in um the song stonehenge where the uh great number where the 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 monument actually descends onto the stage so the 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 the, <laughs> the the tiny little stonehenge model is descended onto the stage and david is actually looking at it with his mouth wide open like he can't believe what he's seeing uh and they have to do the the performance and the, the yeah the dwarves which are dressed up in sort of, I don't know, slightly patronising pagan garb or sort of Celtic garb. Yeah, Celtic. like tripping over the the stone. They're dancing around it and almost falling on top of it. Yeah, the band are absolutely furious. And then I think I mean, we have that's quite Led Zepp, isn't it? All the sort of like this mandolin music. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then we have the big argument about it afterwards. Okay. 
I do not for one think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. All right? That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. I really think you're just making a much too big a thing out of it. Making a big thing out of it would have been a good idea. Nigel gave me a drawing that said 18 inches, all right? I know he did, and that's what now, I'm talking about. he knows the difference between feet and inches is not my problem. I do what I'm told. But you're not as confused as him, are you? I mean, it's not your job to be as confused as Nigel is. It's my job to do what I'm asked to do by the creative element of this band, and that's what I did. The Come audience on. were laughing. So it became a comedy number, right? Yes, it did. Yes, it fucking well did, and it was not pleasant to be part of the comedy on stage. Backstage, perhaps, it was very amusing. Well, maybe we just fix the choreography and keep the dwarf clear. What do you mean? So they won't trod upon it. I don't think that's the Look, issue. I think it's symptomatic of that you, maybe you're taking on more than you can uh, 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 handle. Oh, it's not right. exactly I the first maybe... time you've messed things up, is it? I mean, there have been some uh, some gaping time. holes in the business end of this. Minute, if this uh... Excuse me. This is a band meeting, right? Are you don't here for some reason? Don't worry about it. She's, no, she's with oh, me. Yeah, is she now in the band? She's I mean, is she me. singing back she's up with me? I care what she's happens me, right? to the band. David, whenever a single bump or a ruffle comes into this little fantasy, adolescent fantasy world that you guys you guys have built around yourself, you start screaming like a bunch of Ponzi hairdressers. I mean, it's it's just a problem, you know? It gets solved. It doesn't. You can't, live, you can't live in a bubble. If it got solved, that would be all right, but it doesn't get solved. I mean, what do you think happened out there? What got solved tonight? For one thing that goes wrong, one, one single thing that goes wrong, a hundred things go right. Do you know what, what I spend my time doing? There's no sex and drugs for Ian, David. Spend my time doing? I sleep two or three hours a night. There's no sex and drugs for Ian, David. You know what I do? I find lost luggage. Yes. I, I locate mandolin strings in the middle of Austin. Well, maybe that's what I do. Someone else to find the lost luggage, and you should concentrate on what's yes. going on on stage. Yes. That's what we're you talking about. Road, all bad. No. All no. bad. But so we got. We... What Dave is trying to say, if you'd let him get a word through, is you could maybe do with some help. Some help. It's very simple. It's very simple. It's that clear. Maybe there's someone already in the organisation. We don't have to pay insurance. We don't have to pay extra room, etc. Since she's already here, she's already among us, and uh, and she can certainly capable of taking she? over. Wait a minute. Well, who do you Wait think I'm talking about? Who what? do you think I'm talking about? I would have, would never have dreamed in a million years that it was her you were talking about. Why not? Seriously I am offering Wait. to help out. No, you're not offering to help out. You're offering to co-manage the band with me. Is that it? Yes. yes. Let's get it in straight. so many words. That is exactly it. Well, I'm no. certainly not going to co-manage with some 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 girl you, just because she's your girlfriend. Don't call her my girlfriend. 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 You couldn't manage a classroom full of kids. I don't know what you're doing, managing that. Oh, shut up! Look, look, look I, 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 this is this is my position. Okay, I am not managing it with you or any oh, other good. woman, especially one who dresses like an Australian's nightmare. So fuck you and fuck all of you because I quit. All right. That's it. Good night. Can I raise a practical question at this point? Yeah. Are we going to do Stonehenge tomorrow? No, we're not going to fucking do Stonehenge. And I'm not going to co-manage the group with someone who dresses like an Australian's nightmare. <laughs> That's <laughs> <laughs> so what about we fix the choreography, keep the dwarf clear. <laughs> I think that's probably enough. There's there are other classic moments. Uh, ultimately, Nigel quits as well. He leaves, and the band are in terrible, a terrible state. They resort. They do a, a festival um, where they are billed second to a puppet show. So it says on the on the 
on the door of the festival, puppet show and spinal tap. So things have got really bad. That's a low. Uh, they're desperate. They they need him back. And um, just when things are really bad, Nigel does turn up again. And he says, yeah, I've been, I've been speaking to Ian. You know, he's managed to get a... Um, He's managed to put together a tour of Japan because the smell the glove is selling really, really, really well in Japan. And it was a bit of a cliche that in the eighties, a lot of Japan bands. was kind of a new market that bands were kind of doing comeback tours, but just in Japan, things yeah, they, like that. Bands that were of, not popular or successful anywhere else in the world, where like, or at least in the US or the UK in the the previous like main markets, where they were like totally obscure. Uh, were really successful in Japan. So you could be, to say that you're big in Japan means that you're only big in Japan rather than being yeah. big everywhere else. I mean, they've else. obviously always been a, quite big consumers of British and American music haven't yeah. they, in Japan. I mean, something like the band like The Police were huge in Japan. Loads they? of bands are massive over there. Yeah, obviously. The Beastie Boys were huge in Japan. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but a lot of bands that aren't necessarily still popular here are maybe still popular in Japan, as you were saying. Yeah. Exactly. So they've got a, a tour of Japan lined up. And so, you know, Nigel rejoins the band and then off they go again and they're able to do their stupid childish stuff. And, um, the status quo is resumed. And their drummer explodes on stage yeah. and is replaced by another one. And um, they get to carry on their stupid childish game, which they call a rock and roll show. And that's that's... This That's is where we tap. leave it. We've been going for over two hours. Oh, God. Um, Sorry about that. Well, you know, the people who who expect an apology have already stopped listening by this point. And yeah. except that one person who is... Who, who can't find the off button. Who can't find it desperately, and they're now blowing the dust off their fingers, ready to write something. Oh, they're the on comments. a very long car journey, and they can't take their hands off the wheel because there's a cop, like, right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, that's right. Or their mobile phone has fallen on the floor and they can't reach it. Yeah, and this is the only thing they can listen to. Yeah. Well, anyway, I hope you enjoyed the you've, episode. I see you've put the link to the DVD commentary there as well. That's worth a look. Once you watch the film, then watch the DVD commentary as well because yeah. it's just as funny. Yeah. Well, you know, the, hopefully one person will choose to watch the film after having listened to this and then they'll watch it again with the DVD commentary and we'll convert one person out there to Spinal Tap. It's very late. It's time for us to stop. Oh, it's one o'clock in the morning. There you go. The thing, the things we do for podcasting, listeners, we stay up late in order to bring you this great, great content. I'm sure I had lots of interesting things to say about this, but I can't remember them now. Never mind. The, the, it's... it's um, We've done all we can. Listeners, thanks so much for listening all the way up to this point. I don't know why I'm saying thank you to you. You should be saying thank you to us, if anything. Um, anyway, I'll speak to you again soon. Yeah, have a nice uh, rest of your day, evening, whatever you're doing. Um, drive safe. Uh, don't fall asleep. At the wheel. See you another time. All right, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.